All right, we are live. We are live with a very special stream tonight. Very excited to have a special guest for everybody here tonight. We have Matt Errett. Um, Matt, welcome to the Space Commune live stream. My greatest honor and pleasure to be with you today. Oh, awesome. Awesome. The pleasure is all I gotta say, I really love this this animated uh, celestial sphere background. It's wonderful. Really, really great. Great context you're creating here. Thank you. Thank you. That's kind of like the space commune branding. It's it's blending this idea of like looking to the stars and looking to space and being aspirational, but also being sort of rooted in the ground too, right? Um, yeah. So that's the that's kind of the space commune branding. Um, yeah, people in the in the chat are already excited. Um, yeah. So just to give Matt a little intro here, Matt is uh, Matt Errett is a senior fellow at the um, at American University in Moscow, founder of Canadian Patriot Review, Rising Tide Foundation, and author of the Untold History of Can- of Canada series. How's that for an intro? Is there uh, intro? Is there anything I missed there? Uh, you could say one thing. Um, I just published uh, volume four of uh, The Clash of the Two Americas this week as well, which I co-authored with my wife, uh, Cynthia Chung. Um, and that's on the Anglo-Venetian roots of the deep state exposed. So that's that's something that people could get by going to uh, CanadianPatriot.org. Excellent. Yeah, I, I, I got to pick that up. I'm, I've just been like sucking up all of your content like i think it's great uh i was saying before we went live how um we just align on on all these issues and it's it's really cool and i'm i was like so excited to discover your work um i uh <laughs> we got uh space larouche in the chat he says uh this is great and hi uh space larouche is is an awesome friend of ours uh space larouche yeah he he did a great uh speech at a Schiller conference that I was just at with with him in the fall, so that was a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, I named this stream. I, I was I was trying to come up with the name of the stream for tonight, and I was looking at your website, and I went to the mission page, and the first sentence says, uh, "Mankind is at a crossroads, defined by two opposing paradigms." And I thought that's a great that's just a great title. So, do you want to talk about? Uh, what you mean by that uh, in depth a little bit? Yeah, most certainly. And and before, when we were just chatting before the live stream began, we were both commenting about uh, how influenced we've both been by our, our studies of uh, the writings of L- Lyndon LaRouche, the late economist and thinker, um, which definitely gave me a lot to work with. Um, I myself was... Uh, a volunteer with that organization full-time for about a decade, starting in 2006. And, you know, I had been a really uh, demoralized conspiracy theorist for the first, you know, between 2003 when you started, I began waking up to, obviously, the, this, the same typical stuff other people do, you know, 9-11, inside job, okay, my life is a giant lie, okay, <laughs> like it's been going on for generations, okay, what do we do now? So that's a demoralizing thing if you don't have a sense of, well, what is... Uh, humankind, like, what, were we destined for something greater? And I didn't really have that sense. I had sort of a black bill, black pilled uh, filter through which I looked at the uh, at our past, our history, and I couldn't really see the good. So it was a blessing when I, um, I think I was hungry for it when I finally encountered some of the Larouche literature, and it gave me that edge to sort of appreciate that there is this continuous fight. 
And not only is there this continuous fight over centuries and even millennia between opposing um, ways of thinking about the fundamental concepts like what is it to be a human? What is human nature? What is law? What is natural law? What is the universe? What is freedom from this context, right? How does freedom coexist with law? Which, you know, naively one would say, oh, yeah, those are two very um, antagonistic concepts. They can't coexist. As soon as you have law, you, you deprive, you know, individuals of freedom. So you either have to pick one or the other, live in a totalitarian fascist state of law or live in a society with no laws and total pure personal anarchic freedom. It's like pick pick an extreme, and it's like well, maybe <laughs> through this thing called free will um, and reason, we can actually discover that there's certain types of laws that are rooted in the fabric of the universe, and that when we discover them through acts of of choosing, right, and and developing our our conscience and our minds, we uh, learn to not only discover those laws, but then we can obey them in a way that gives us greater freedom to exist, to thrive, to live at a happier, higher quality life with a longer longevity, right? Greater need, greater potential to meet our needs of water, food, aspirations to develop our, our aesthetic identities, our spiritual identities. And so that's really been, um, that, that was something that I really was struck by in reading the, the, the LaRouche um, literature was that uh, he gave me a language and a way of thinking about these two paradigms that have been clashing. On the one hand, an oligarchical paradigm that have, that's been trying like a parasite to hold on to humanity for thousands of years and reduce us to a status not qualitatively different from from talking cows. Yeah. Um, and that means, you know, deep population control, keep us stupid, keep us fighting each other, right? And then on the other hand, you have the great Solons, the lawgivers. You have Plato's, you have you have Cicero's, you have Augustine's, you have this other other trend including you you find the same thing in, in Hindu literature, in the Upanishad stories, you see this in, in Confucianism and, and uh, in various grouping fights within Buddhism. You, you see this in, in very, various civilizational dynamics, this opposing trend that sees, no, humankind is made for something greater. Mm. You know, they might give it different words for God, different words for these things, but overall the, the principle is the same. We are capable and we're actually more happy and at our true self and true nature when we're overcoming the limits to growth, mm -hmm. when we're not just being satisfied to, to adapt to controlled environments controlled by a master class of hereditary elites. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that, that, that thing on my website, that, that sort of reflects that philosophy and how I'm looking right now at the, the world. Yeah, I'm sort of a positive view of mankind, right? Um, yeah. And I find that, that that resonates deeply with me. Um, as well, uh, I've always had a deep love for humanity, um, and, you know, th going through politics and philosophies of all kinds, you know, I, what I find really the root issue is whether you're pro humanity or you're anti humanity, right? And that's, that's kind of been the, the theme throughout history, right? We have all kinds of things like socialism, communism, feudalism, all these different modes of operating economies. But the, the one constant that I kind of see is this anti-humanity or pro-humanity and and we are in a culture that is very anti-human and sees human human beings as just another animal right um yeah and yeah that that deeply resonates resonated with me too this the the larouche approach to it so um yeah it's re it's really cool to uh, meet people i don't know if in canada uh larouche has kind of uh I don't know here here in the U.S. It's it's I 
I didn't notice this until I did the conference last fall, but people go nuts over LaRouche. Uh, people think it's a cult. People freak out at you anytime you, you bring up, up the guy's name. Um, Space LaRouche talks about it. He, he calls it the L word. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a, it's like, well, you know, people have been living as a, as a society now through several generations of, of a bit of a trance. Um, there's been a lot of social engineering, a lot of um, secular spell making and narrative reframing and neurolinguistic programming and things that have been deployed to really declare, war, like, go to war on the, the zeitgeist. Um, so yeah, people have been Congress born, especially younger freedom. people. Oh yeah, exactly, yeah. right? Like yeah. there there's this invisible field uh of culture which shapes us and which we can possibly at at times if we choose to try to in, in turn reciprocally shape. Though if 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 the wall dividing the the subjective self conceptually from the objective, you know, world is made immutably large and you've got this artificial division, then you won't even try to influence it for the better. If anything, you'll just try to, you know, adapt to whatever cultural norms are there. But it's like who made those norms? Right. Who made those standards of like why is Jackson Pollock and his paintings selling for four hundred million dollars when like Da Vinci's folio sold for like twenty million dollars to Bill Gates? Um, like why would Jackson Pollock who splattered paint on an afternoon on a canvas go for half a billion dollars? Whereas Da Vinci <laughs> who discovered laws of creation and yeah. enshrined beauty and reason in his paintings, um, sell for a fraction of that. Yeah. And no, it's I, like, well, this is not just, it, there's yeah. political interventions that have artificially made these standards what they are. It's not natural. So yeah, yeah that was all well. I mean, said. leftists will say, "Oh, there's no such thing as beautiful art." And I'm somebody who who has an art, you know, background. Like I'm a designer um, by profession, so I did, you know, I went through an art history course in my community college. Um, and I remember the the this learning about this phase where all of a sudden art was just splatter dookie on the wall you know and it's like it's like that uh, mlk statue that they just did it's like a, it's like a giant turd it's like what is this it's not beautiful and you get then you get like the right wingers who say who think beauty is just this sort of vapid aestheticism and then um but really um there is sort of laws of beauty right and balance like gestalt principles um the golden ratio, right? And and it all is sort of built on this axiom that um, the universe is not entropic, right? That's that's sort of this axiom that we're all taught is that everything is just sort of chaotic and there's no, there's no meaning to anything and it's all just random. Um, yeah. but that, that feels very unsatisfying to human beings. And I, I think that when we can embrace this idea that, yeah, we're actually – the universe uh, – we're part of it and making it more beautiful. And that's a good thing. Uh, that starts to open your mind to ideas about, um, how we should view man and, and how you can kind of oppose the, the oligarchic system, right. That sees man as an animal. That's beautifully said. And you know, I was just, <laughs> I was talking to my wife today about my experience. Cause I, I was also, I have an arts background and illustration and, and then I was in fine arts and animation in, in university. And, and, um, it was, I had an experimental film, film class and it was a big auditorium of about 70 students. I was literally just talking with her about three hours ago about this very, very phenomenal uh, <laughs> situation and how, um, there was for, uh, this one film, we had to sit down for 60 minutes straight and there were strobe lights, um, 
there was a, a constant, it was, it was like an MK Ultra experience. I didn't know what wow. MK Ultra was at the time, but now in hindsight, eh. um, and it was basically just imagery of like, you know, a, a blade in somebody's eye, a tongue getting cut, like oh, just God. violent imagery mixed with flowers and other things, you know? So it was like God. just that strobe light. And the only sound that was blaring was a repetition of, I forget, but basically what it, it was, I think it was destroy, 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 destroy just <laughs> 60 minutes of that. And then uh, somewhere towards the end, the teacher turns it off and she uh, has this dialogue with the student saying, what what sounds did you hear? And people were like, oh, I started hearing destroy. And this other, this other group or other people were like, no, I started hearing something else. And there were like four or five different words that different people in the audience heard. Um, and I was proud of myself because even though I didn't know very much politically, I did know I was just violated. And that was the first time in my life that I put my hand up and I said, I just said that. I was like, look, honestly, I heard destroy, but I also more importantly feel like that was violence on me. Yeah, wow. <laughs> and I had to walk out to avoid vomiting. And I said that out loud. And, and so that was for me a big, like, I'm not going to take this shit anymore moment hmm. where things sort of changed. I was like, I can call out. I don't have to pay homage or respect to the uh, this cult of ugliness I'm being told I have to worship to to be a respected artist. And uh, ultimately, I dropped out. I, I, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't put myself through that because the 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 postmodernist ideologues who had really taken control of the entire fine arts department were ensuring a philosophy of of um, adherence to their their value system. And I remember one of the lead uh, chairman of the of the program gave a, a speech to all of the students and teachers, saying, "Unless you are making your in, through your art, your audience squirm uncomfortably in their chairs because it was cinema, you know, like uh, experimental cinema. Um, you're you're failing as an artist. Hmm. And I was like, well, but I I don't I don't want to make them squirm uncomfortably. I want to communicate thoughts and meaning that I have yeah. using symboli symbology imagery, my art in a way that makes them inspired somehow. I want to I want to help them. I want to communicate something intelligible. So I realized that if, if I, I was deconstructing myself just by being in that environment mm. and I was losing myself. So I was like, I, I have to, I have to go. Yeah. And luckily that, that was where I, <laughs> I, uh, it took me a couple more years, but I, I found, uh, uh, the LaRouche organization filled, uh, that space nicely in terms of giving me a sense of why I was feeling that way and what was more positively, like you pointed out, what is the relationship between science and art? What is it about the golden section, which we find in, embedded in all processes in nature and the, the orbital pathways of planets and the organization of living, living, uh, organisms. You find the golden section everywhere in the fabric of DNA, as well as in art, as well as in musical vibrations. Yeah. Um, yeah. so it's like, Oh, this, this dichotomy between logic and, uh, arts is a false dichotomy. I was told exists, but it doesn't really exist yeah. if you do it right. Um, inversely, you know, if you just are, are into just pure, uh, like you were saying, if you look at a lot of the conservative reactionaries to the postmodernist deconstruction movement of, of, of the arts that we were just making fun of, you tend to get, like you just pointed out, a lot of just very bland, didactic, you know, um, imagery without higher meaning. It's just like, yeah. it is what it is. Yeah. It's uh, art it's for the sake of art. Anarchism. Hmm? Anarchist art, right? You get that too. Yeah, you get propaganda, anarchy, varieties of, of flavors, but nothing that really approximates uh, something which can transform in a better way that yeah. makes you a better person. Yeah, I mean, uh, I didn't last very long. I was going, I was going to Pratt 
in Brooklyn, which is a pretty highfalutin art school. Um, I lasted about a month before I dropped out um, because I wanted to be a commercial artist and work with work with the people. I didn't want to have to make art to satisfy, you know, the need, you know, the desires of whatever rich person would, you know, become my patron. But, you know, now, now my, now I'm, I'm shilling for patrons on YouTube, but <laughs> that's okay. But you're doing I, it on your terms that's, now. That's right. <laughs> and I, I like, I like shilling for these guys. They're, they're my buddies. So, um, so yeah. Um, yeah, art, it's, it's interesting how we both came from that art background. Um, there must be something about coming from that art background that gives you a, a specific sort of political <laughs> framework. I don't know. I don't know either. I mean, I, I don't think I don't think I really was. I was a bit of a blank slate. I think before I I kind of went from zero, um, like without any political identity for most of my life. I didn't ever really enjoy reading. Even I didn't get into the habit of reading for uh, for pleasure. Um, and I, I sort of went from that that zero state. I was kind of like I think a good person, but you know, whatever, normie, you know, uh, to like very quickly going through my life altering, you know, Federal Reserve, international yeah. bankers, conspiracy, took, inside job stuff. Like, it red, all kind of like hit very pill, fast. Right? Yeah, yeah, I took the red pill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or is it the, yeah. the black pill? I don't know about you. If, yeah. Was it a, was this, was it kind of like a, a slower transition for yourself to go from your, your I don't know what the hell's going on phase to where you're at now? Or was it sort of like a quicker shock shockwave you know i'm not even sure i think i think for me what it was um was being able to so i bought a house in 2014 um i got to a point in my career where i grew up poor and like i i finally was able to have some sort of stability in my life and that and that gave me the freedom to start thinking about things right um because you can't if you're just struggling to survive, and I think that's kind of the basis of my politics is that I want that for everyone. I want everyone to have the amount of uh, material stability that they're able to take the time to think about things and to to participate in like what's what's going on around them, right? Um, and shape the world around them. Um, yeah, and I, I I sort of was I I don't know I I, I was vaguely political, but then became more involved locally with things and, you know, made my way from the, you know, through the left at this point, I totally hate the left because it's just, and that might just be a historical, you know, thing, because at this point the left is, was a, an operation. You could say Congress for cultural freedom part two, uh, to sort of take that, that sentiment that people had where they were, you know, they, they could see things were going wrong with the country and they wanted things to, to be better so they they showed everyone oh this bernie sanders he's gonna he's gonna help he's the guy for you and he he turned out to be a total fraud um and that i think that that left everyone with sort of a hangover and they're like well what now and a lot of people went the direction of this sort of post left where they're a, a very sort of nihilistic almost slingshotting back to the right but but a very like nihilistic oh there's no meaning to anything you just got to go back to the land and um, return to monkey and <laughs> become a farmer. And that's the only way you'll find meaning in life is to decentralize. Um, and that big government is, is the problem. And, um, yeah, I, I, I left. Yeah. Yeah. The whole left, right thing is, is such a, it's such a fraudulent thing, right? Yeah. Cause like what was defining the left back, you know, yesterday was the, the anniversary of Martin Luther King's birthday. 
And, you know, if you look at what was the left considered when the progressive left in, in Martin Luther King's time, it was it was something that, that had some fiber to it. You know, you look at the policies of people like JFK, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King. You look at, like, what were the policies yeah. that they were fighting for? And you'd say that, they, yeah, they were in the context of the world they lived in, they would be considered, you know, at the time, uh, left-wing, progressive, yeah. uh, liberal in that sense. They were against dictatorship, fascism, the FBI operations, all of this stuff, all good. They were against, you know, economic enslavement, economic imperialism. Today, they would be considered like radically right. Yeah. Uh, and you know, like borderline domestic terrorists. Yeah. <laughs> if those well, opinions, it's uh, all about themselves. cultural. It's all about cultural issues now and, and, and centering yeah. the cultural issues when before, you know, the left was traditionally about class struggle and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, yeah like I, don't exploit your fellow neighbor. Don't don't yeah try to treat people with uh, economic justice. Mm -hmm. Don't yeah like these are all like perfectly fine, good, noble uh, principles to <laughs> to operate with. Um, and now it's like you have the left converging with like the worst elements of the left and the worst elements of the right all kind of converging into the same place, which is uh, you know cheering on an insane proxy war against Russia yeah. and, and calling that all of a sudden your moral obligation to be a true you know leftist, which brings the left into convergence with the neocon right that bombed the hell out of the Middle East. So it's like, what the hell are these terms anymore? It, yeah, it was maybe it was always a fraud. Um. And I, I think that from that standpoint, when you look at, um, well, <clears throat> there's this interesting thing. I have you have you looked a little bit at the um, the, the the fake dualism, the, the controlled opposition, left and right between the uh, the uh, the worst elements of the Bolsheviks that were funded by a lot of the the Milner, Jacob Schiff, Warburg groups uh, to destabilize Russia at mm -hmm. the same time as these same groups were funding the right wing reactionary uh, fascists around uh, Count uh, Kudenhova Kalergi in the Pan Europa. I have not. I have not looked into that, but I mean, it makes sense. I mean, to me, the the fact that by the end of the Soviet Union, we had somebody like Mikhail Gorbachev in office, who was a huge Malthusian. Obviously, somewhere along the way, this Soviet experiment um, went terribly wrong. Um, you know, I'm I'm not as well versed in history as you are, but uh, it does seem like yeah, at the, after like the Cold War, right? The Cold War, um, and you write about this a lot. How the the game the name of the game was to divide and conquer right and to sort of infiltrate um, yes. and create created enemies out of Russia and China who we had just fought a giant war with which is uh, insane exactly. yeah and by that time a lot of the the worst elements of the Trotskyite you know uh, variants of the Bolshevism all became the neocons yeah like people like uh, my wife just wrote an article on uh, Burnham. Um, <clears throat> As the sort of godfather of the, the neocons, but this guy Burnham was formerly Trotsky's personal secretary, mm. who was running these gigantic, intricate fifth columns in uh, in Russia, trying to you know that had killed some of Stalin's allies, that had tried to kill Stalin, that had. I mean, people say that they brush this thing off as if it's just a big make believe thing, but people like Grover Fur, yeah. an, an impeccable researcher who's worked on original archival yeah. material, has demonstrated that no, this was a very real thing. That had permeated the military, the bureaucracy, you name it. It was the Russian deep state. And these uh, sociopaths in Wall Street and London who wanted simply to overthrow any viability within the Russian, you know, Romanov dynasty that had a, a sort of Lincoln, Lincoln type um, spirit of, that was expressed by the, the collaboration of Alexander II and, and, and Lincoln's allies. 
um, both of whom were, were murdered in terms of, you know, applying protectionism, large-scale infrastructure development, national state banks, uh, overcoming limits to growth. Like, that was what had to be destabilized, and all of those forces in Russia had to be ousted. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you had this this fervor, but this, this, this Bolshevik thing was used, which had a lot of moving parts. There was a lot of in, infighting, not a very clear idea of how to interpret Marxism or Leninism. But they really wanted Trotsky to be the guy running the show. That was like their golden boy mm. who was like assigned to, to, to collect the money in, in Wall Street in 1918, right? Um, and they didn't get it. Trotsky was, was kicked out in 27. And, uh, and there was a, a fight back within Russia regarding, I think Vernotsky played a role um, as a very high-level figure within the Russian Academy of Sciences at the time, who was very close to a lot of um, key figures in the Russian intelligentsia around Stalin who had a, a, a very more substantial sense of what Russia's historic responsibilities were and allowed for them to carry out um, a series of, of economic and political arrangements that involved putting down the, the whole Nazi machine. And if it were not for Russia, I mean, there's no reason for anyone to think that Nazis, the Nazis would not have been victorious with all of the backing that they had been receiving as well from yeah. the Wall Street you know, city of London groupings. But all of these, these, these freaks who were Trotskyites after Trotsky is killed all become neocons. Yeah. They all then have this complete transformative road of Damascus type conversion from Irving Kristol and the New Republic and, yeah. uh, uh, Albert Volstetter, you know, who's like managing Rancor. I mean, all of these, these creeps who were Trotskyists become the neocons. And this thing then manages the entire like fake, uh, bipolarism of the Cold War. In the context, as James Burnham and my, my my wife actually she, she's been educating me on this because it's a big it's a chapter in her new book. Who you might actually want to talk to to Cynthia at some point. She's she's really good on this stuff. But James Burnham plays a key role in setting up the Congress for Cultural Freedom. Yeah, exactly. Along with... Yep. <laughs> I know these I are know. The, these are the guys who taught Americans and the and the West what Marxism is, and and that, I I do actually have a documentary um, called Marxism and Energy. Which is taken it's uh, from a bunch of podcast interviews that I did with different people, um, and specifically my friend Caleb Maupin. He is he's great about the Congress for Cultural Freedom. Um, he is a you know loud and proud uh, Marxist Leninist communist. I'll say he's probably one of the only ones that I like at this point because the rest of them are just too they're too pro degrowth. Uh, they believe in all this ecological nonsense. Um, and that that's a hard line for me. That is where we, we we have to be opposed to this stuff completely. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that Marxism, Marxist-Leninism is such an underdefined thing. So it, there's a lot of room for interpretation. Um, and, le- you know, good people will tend to pull out those um, points of analysis within Marxism. And, you know, I, I guess you could say Engels because both of them kind of – there's a lot of overlap – but they'll put they'll pull out those reasonable points of analysis and incorporate that into their their thinking and leave the stuff that is a bit more toxic because I mean that's the way like all influential written you know written codes whether religious or or otherwise can justify doing a lot of damage sure. you know the Bible's been used to kill a lot of people and carry out wars or do a lot of good like the Bible's also inspired people to do great things and and. Do, great charitable works, same thing for the Quran and the Torah. So, I mean, I think the same thing should be approached with the secular texts that are very influential. Yeah. And to the degree that somebody is, is on, has their heart in the, the right place, they will see the, 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 the reasonable critiques of imperialism in Marx 
they'll be they'll they'll gain insight on those correct criticisms of the the self-destructive nature of of, of monetary exploiters exploit is that's not even a word whatever um <laughs> exploiters and you know that exploiter yeah and i mean larouche too you know larouche was teaching he didn't know about the american system in the first you know few years of his political activity from the yeah. early 70s to like 78 he didn't know and so if you read a lot of it he was using a lot of concepts you find in marx's dust capital in terms of the increase of the productive forces of yep. labor things like that yep. but he was also adding things that were not in marx based on just his his reason reasonable ability to think as a human being about mm -hmm. the nature of human beings overcoming limits to growth yep. um and and encapsulating the idea of labor not just in the material domain but also in the mental domain and if you do that like vernaski does this too and and a lot of the best marxists are all recognizing the metaphys they're not just pure dialectic materialists which which is a toxic way of thinking it, it, it presumes that quantity always governs quality which right there you're screwed if you if you have that assumption but the 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 healthy marxists i've noticed will always tend to have a metaphysics and that metaphysics encapsulates an understanding that labor is something of a creative sort as well as muscle labor mm. and if you think that way well like you know, the, the limits that are imposed on our body, you can only do so much physical labor, are not are not present in the works of, of mind in that sense, you know? You can you you can't get full of I've you know well you can get full yeah. of cake and pie, but you can't get full of too many discoveries. And it, it, it doesn't resolve for the issue of like getting to a point in society where the production has is automated to a certain level where people don't have to like use their bodies to labor anymore and they're more free to to do that creative labor. Yeah. Now, what do you do with that? And I think that's where we get a lot of middle-class on we in our society is people who do have that material comfort level, but, but then they have, they're told that there's no future. There's nothing, yes. there's no meaning to life. So they, they, they turn, they get, they have this like hatred and this frustration about them and they don't have an outlet uh, because there's no future. Right. And then they, they don't, um, they're, they're sort of these like urbanoid, bike bikeoid degrowth back to land people who hate who hate either like the city or they hate the suburbs mostly they hate the suburbs they hate the middle class where they came from um, yeah yeah um mm -hmm. so uh, yeah I, I think that um that's what i take from larouche a lot i like actually i think larouche started out as a marxist um and he i i think he w he witnessed in real time what was happening with the congress for cultural freedom and was like what the fuck is going on here i don't want anything to do with this yes. and he kind of uh branched out in his own direction he contributed so much and and i like to blend in you know a lot of his theories about the the, the mind right and there's another there's another thinker who's sort of a classic liberal guy more of a conservative named julian simon who uh, made a? He was famous for making a bet against Paul Ehrlich about his predictions about uh, running out of resources. Yeah, okay. and he won. He famously won. Um, he he sadly died at like you know in his fifties or something. But um, he also had that idea of like the human mind is this ultimate resource, right? That um, mm. the more humans there are, and the more potential for human minds to create new discoveries, right? And that that's yeah. the catalyst for. Um, you know, our society is developing and growing and going from, you know, burning, burning wood to coal to fossil, 
fossil fuel. People get mad at me if I say fossil fuel. They say, oh, that's a marketing term. It's not really from dinosaurs, but <laughs> I don't. I don't even know. Um, Let, let's let's say hi, we'll, we'll accommodate them. We'll call it hydrocarbons for now. Yeah, yeah, and then to like uranium, but and so on and so forth. You know what I'm, you know where I'm going with that. Um, yeah. But it's the reciprocity know, thing, right? Yeah. Um, and it's the, it's the it's the resource that makes resources. Like yeah. every other resource, you you draw it down. Whereas this particular resource of mind can always create new resources and redefine our relationship to the periodic table of elements. Not only by discovering what's already there, but you know, and, and that also includes the the two thousand or whatever four thousand now. I think it is isotopes. Uh, there's these slight variants of each of the elements. You know, some have more, some have less um, uh, neutrons, or, or anyway. But you you have you have this this with other animal species. The, the relationship with with the periodic table is relatively fixed. The the rabbits will eat their rabbit food, which has you know a certain uh, set of proportions of these particular elements. They'll they'll have their their gas exchange, you know, they'll breathe their oxygen in or they'll breathe oxygen in, CO2 out. That feeds the plants. You know, the plants have their relationship to the to carbon or to the periodic table. But human beings, our relationship is not fixed. If we make discoveries, we are we're going from the I mean, the, the Iron Age was a big step up from the Bronze Age, you know, and and. Iron wasn't an ore. I, I love this lesson from LaRouche when he's saying like, well, what he asked, well, what defines the difference between um, an, an ore and a rock, you know, like an actual resource and just something that you see lying around. And, and in the Bronze Age, sure enough, iron was just another rock, you know, just like before we discovered the use of oil, it was just something that, that pissed off your farmers. If a farmer discovered they had this black stuff under their soil, they were angry because that ruins their ability to harvest. And then after, you know, into the late 19th century, then it all of a sudden becomes this great, abundant, good thing. You would want to find this under your soil. Um, and it, it, but what makes this all is work is this, this metaphysical, non-material, but existent quality of, of mental, of mentation, mm. which has a reciprocal effect in, into the general welfare in that when you have a, a moral society or a society that's capable of encouraging these discoveries and then applying those discoveries into trans improving the productive forces of labor through, through industrial and, and even educational systems, because now, you know, a new discovery renders your old ways of teaching and your old textbooks um, obsolete. So you have to be moral enough to have that flexible, creative, acceptance of higher new truths and you can't have that arrogance which makes you inflexible and makes you, you know, like a bad teacher sees a student a creative student who has a new idea that this teacher doesn't have an answer to the teacher gets hostile mm. and attacks the student um it's like that for a bad a bad society too you know you, you a good society is one that encourages each uh, oh I'm, I'm choppy is my voice coming through okay yeah you got a little choppy for a second but Okay, but I think audibly it's, it's okay. evening out now. Okay, good. Um, so yeah, just just that idea that there's this reciprocity between the entirety of the universe and, as you pointed out, going from states where our life expectancy was very low, infant mortality was very high, life was hard, um, to moving to a state where now we can communicate over light speed <laughs> through this thing on my on my desk using language that's transmitted through light to you and your mind processes, sees 
recognizes quality in that information exchange and then exchanges it back to me over at the speed of light. Um, to say that that's all just random, random quantum you know mechanics like just just random atoms just flopping around and and Darwinian forces just like yeah. randomly mutating uh, and that just happened to produce this incredible <laughs> like ex- process is is really a cult that people get into and I, I think like you said the, the Congress for Cultural Freedom played a huge role even though it was an artistic thing. Uh, mostly that was that was the Congress's devotion was was shaping the artistic norms. It had a hugely negative impact upon the scientific thinking because mm. the scientists aesthetically they lost the inner aesthetic ability to judge beauty and ugliness, truth and 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 falsehood, because nothing was nothing was true because nothing was false because everything was right because we're living in a statistical world <laughs> where everything kind of is in other dimensions and we you know we see it now really all over the place with in a caricaturized way with Marvel comics, you know, multiverses and <laughs> shit like that. Like, I know, I know. I, I, I worked in a video store growing up and, uh, I, I just remember all of the, the videos they would churn out, uh, constantly, but at least there was still some good movies coming out, uh, towards, I don't know, towards the end of the nineties, early two thousands. Mm. Now it's just garbage. It's just all garbage. <laughs> I feel like I haven't seen a good movie in a long time, but um yeah there's a couple of there's a couple that eke through somehow uh i gotta i we, we have on our, our rising tide foundation it's a little educational website we've set up a, a little movie list for for movies old or new that that have an effect of of in some degree edifying uh the soul and there's there's a couple that made it through like i think the martian was okay as far as like with matt damon in 2000, but that was still 2015. That was seven years ago. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't pay any um, attention. I, I'm, I need to check that out though, because I need some good movies. I'll send you the list. Cool. You, Very cool. Yeah, there's, there's foreign movies. There, there are more actual foreign movies that you'll find that were recently done after like 2008 from China hmm. that actually, and shows too, like some, some of these Chinese dramas, including, including the, the, the ancient uh, settings, because they, they're really big in like, you know, Han Dynasty, like ancient uh, warring states period dramas. They're and they're long. They're like seventy to like three hundred uh, episodes. So, but but unlike the uh, the similar sorts of phenomena we get in the West, uh, there you'll always find these moral lessons and a training of the minds of the viewers to appreciate the real life. Uh, Byzantine nature of politics that is real. Like they make it intelligible. Um, and again, there's always some form of edifying moral lesson, often framed in the form of some tragedy. Um, that's always there, and it, it's a breath of fresh air compared to the type of of nihilistic garbage I, I see on Netflix yeah. in the Western part of the world. I, I there's good stuff out there, though. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah. You know, speaking of China, so I want to, I want to shift over and talk about, um, cause so I've been reading your, um, what would you call this? It's like a short, uh, 70 page pamphlet. Um, really, really well done. Okay. Yeah, I got, got one here. Very it's, cool. Uh... Yeah. So breaking, yeah. breaking free of anti-China psyops, uh, yeah. how the cold war is being revived and what you can do about it. Uh, by Matthew Errett and Cynthia Chung. Very cool. Um, yeah, I'm about halfway through, and it's just it's fantastic so far. Um, it's a great resource for sort of seeing the, the 
where all this bullshit comes from, right? All this, there's so much anti-China rhetoric. Um, we actually, we just recorded a, a podcast yesterday with uh, somebody named Doomberg who has a huge following. They're, they're sort of a finance energy sector um, experts, but they have a very pro-humanity philosophy that drives them, which is awesome. They're very, you know, pro-nuclear energy. Um, but they, you know, they, they bring up the, the Uyghur, uh, slave labor thing, which I, I feel like comes up a lot, uh, with the people who are sort of these eco-modernist anti, um, anti-Malthusian people who are, want to promote the green agenda in a way that's not an anti-human way. And I, I find myself aligning with them mostly, but not totally. I, I like that they go after the degrowthers. Um, but they are, they're very, uh, anti-China and anti-Russia. So it's hard to find, I always say this, it's so hard to find somebody who checks all the right boxes with that, but this is a great resource. Um, and I, it touches on so many, so many issues. I think, um, I want to read a short passage and then we can talk about it. Um, because I think this touches on quite a few issues that I've brought up on, on my channel and, and the audience I think will be familiar with. So, um, there's a section called, uh, the division of the world into producers and consumers. Um, uh. since the world was taken off the gold, the gold reserve system in 1971, which it seems like a lot of shit just happened in 1971. Um, bad year, bad year for humanity, <laughs> a bad year. What the fuck happened in 1971? A new yeah. age of post-industrialism was unleashed onto the increasingly globalized world. Humanity was given a new type of system which presumed that both our nature and cause of value itself were located in the act of consuming, at least for citizens of the West. I have a whole documentary called Consumerism, which is – that's how I found the LaRouche organization was um, – Daniel Burke from the LaRouche organization saw that documentary and said, hey, what's up? And that's how I learned – that's how I connected with them. Um, but yeah, consumerism is a whole topic in of, in of itself. Um, the old idea that our nature was creative and that our wealth was tied to producing was assumed to be an obsolete thing of the past, a relic of a dirty industrial age. Under the new post-1971 operating system, we were told that the world would be now divided among producers and consumers. The have-not producers would provide the cheap labor, which first-world consumers would increasingly rely on for the creation of goods as they used to make for themselves – First world, first world nations were told that according to the new post-industrial rules of deregulation and market economics, that they should export their heavy industry, machine tools, and other productive sectors abroad as they transitioned into white-collar post-industrial consumer societies. The longer this outsourcing of industries went on, the less the Western nations found themselves capable of sustaining their own citizenries building their own infrastructure, or, or determining their own economic destinies. In place of full-spectrum economies that once saw over 40% of North Americans' labor force employed in manufacturing, a new addiction to buying cheap stuff began, and a service economies took over like a cancer. So that last part, a service economies took over like a cancer. That is something that came up um, really big in, in the the Twitter sphere over the summer was this idea of um, 
the Starbucks worker unions, that we have to support the Starbucks workers unions. And this split a lot of people who were uh, aligned uh, politically because some of us said, no, the, the Starbucks unions are bullshit because Starbucks is a stupid entropic service economy job and we should move we shouldn't be making those jobs stronger and better we should we should be providing better jobs that are more productive and our economy is falling apart and degrowing and um i just i just thought this emphasis on the service economy over a productive economy is is such an important thing to discuss because we're in this planned right planned post-industrial economy now and we shouldn't be post-industrial we should be still producing things right we shouldn't be entropic and and cannibalizing other places uh for our you know for cheap consumer goods yeah absolutely like there should be no at no point in, in human civilization's experience will it ever be justified to be non-productive like you can't ever get into a state where you can be post-industrial in that sense, because as long as there are bodies that exist in the physical world, <laughs> um, there will always need to be replenishment, sustenance, support yeah. for those bodies that ideally, if they're following the laws of the universe, in, as, as we've been pointing out, and I'm assuming all of your viewers know what these terms mean, like anti-entropy, entropy, but in it, if, if, if we're actually obeying the anti-entropic demands of the universe and thus these bodies are getting healthier, living longer, that's more production demands – um, in the system, you can never fool yourself into allowing for a system to emerge that justifies the idea that you could just consume indefinitely without producing. Consuming is always a part of life. You can't avoid it, but it is a, it is secondary to creating. You got to because to consume, you have to consume things that are created. If you can't do both, number one, well, someone's doing it for you. If you're consuming and you're not doing it, someone's doing it. It just happened. It'll probably be the case as in the, you know, post-1971 age, it'll be increasingly poor people mining, you know, <laughs> mining for, you know, pennies a day in cobalt mines for your phone, like 40,000 children in, in the Congo have to do. Um, or it'll just be sweatshops and cheap labor of people earning maybe a dollar a day in, in Asia, Indonesia, or Mexico or something. And either way, um, you are becoming dependent upon keeping people poorer and poorer so their labor is cheaper and cheaper, so their value of the things you buy is cheaper and cheaper, and you are thus less de- less independent as a person and as an economy. Right. For, 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 and you can't stand on your own two feet anymore. So right. the only people benefiting are those who Henry Kissinger was uh, was working for, which were the middlemen, the super supranational entities who see themselves above the nations who wish to control the means of production and consumption. And, uh, and yeah, I think the, the article you were reading from was from uh, how Kissinger's slave labor program for China came undone. And uh, ultimately, the best insight into this is to read H.G. Wells's um, uh, Time Machine. Or H.G. Wells, I mean, Wells is a high, I, I would say one of the top three influential grand strategists of the 20th century. And people know of Wells's fiction books, but when you read also his, his bountiful nonfiction books, his, these are like organizing manuals for the oligarchical class, like his open conspiracy, his world brain, which by the way is a topic of one of the, the sessions at Davos this week. Um, his, uh, his yeah, new world order from off. 1940. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's he doing in the time machine? These, these are, these are, are organizing tools to create a blueprint 
around which the oligarchy themselves can organize. The, a lot of these fiction works are partially predictive programming and partially also um, organizing the, the minds and zeitgeist of the oligarchy itself, which he was beholden to. And in the time machine, what does it say? You know, you, you've got a million years, human society is like co-evolved with two, two species that differentiated with the, the Morlocks and the LOI and the Morlocks are these like dirty industrialists who like live underground and they're kind of like hybrid mutant monsters and they, they don't talk, but they produce, they're the dirty producers huh. and the, the beautiful people, the blonde haired, blue eyed Aryans above, above ground um, are just like living in stupid, stupid luxuries, useless eaters <laughs> who we discover are the yeah. feedstock for the more, the Morlocks living underground who have to go out on hunting parties to eat their useless eaters. And that's what they've essentially created. They induced us to accept becoming a society of useless eaters with more and more useless jobs that yes. when the time, which is okay in a time of like abundance, when we're still like sort of consuming the, 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 the productive processes in a, that were generated by previous productive generations before, you know, before you and I were born, mm -hmm. as long as we have that abundance, it's not so evident how destructive this is. But as mm -hmm. soon as scarcity um, is part of our life, then all of a sudden we have the types of discussions we see from like Yuval Harari saying like, what do we do with the new useless class? What do we do with the new useless eaters? Well, yeah. drugs, euthanasia, pills, and video games, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, and, and, and most people can't justify why that's wrong because they themselves have been working in the services sector, doing things that are ultimately at best designed to simply support a productive economy. But without the productive economy that you're supporting, you're just, you're, what are you doing in the, in the commercial art sector or, or you know, uh, financial services sector or whatever? Like you have no productive, useful role to play. And so people could say, well, I guess you could just you just can't be maintained. Yeah. Whereas China, if you look at them, they've got a very different approach. Yeah. Yes, they have a, a population crisis, and I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that Kissinger's conditions for exporting our industries to China involved also certain demands that pop, that China accept the Club of Rome's um, economic models, which is where the one-child policy emerged from, was through the Club of Rome economic models being transplanted. This is not a Chinese organization, by the way. This is a Rockefeller-funded operation, the, the Club of Rome, that was that was that saw their their modeling um, programs popularized at the World, World Economic Forum um, in 1973, which became the dominant way that that economists that that environmentalists were trained to to think about the future consequences of development on the ecosystems, which we then were told has to inform government policymaking in terms of ensuring that we don't overproduce or allow an excess population. Hmm. And Kissinger, while he was, you know, organizing the opening up of China, at the same time as he was doing that, he was pr producing his NSSM 200, you know, report that called for what is it, 14 countries that all want to industrialize and embrace scientific progress. And I think like Mexico and Ethiopia and Egypt and uh, there was, there was, there was 15 on that list. They all want progress. They want to end poverty. They want to use the, um, the, Jap the, the Japanese model, the American model of what succeeded. And his logic in, in, a, in that disgusting NSSM report is if they do it, they're going to use the resources under their soil, which are actually in the strategic interest of the United States to own. So we have to now encourage a zero growth policy towards them. 
including threatening the withholding of food if needed, uh, if they don't want to control their populations themselves. And this is what was the logic of the whole like trilateral commission of David Rockefeller that was going into Beijing in the late 70s with their models of saying like, well, you know, you can, we'll, we'll let you have some of our industrial base, but under the condition that these Club of Rome model, uh, Club of Rome population models are brought in at the same time, which China is still healing from. They're still, they did a lot of damage to themselves, but, and they're healing. They've, they've gotten rid of the one child policy. It's now, two, it's now three ch- children for the Han, the Han population. The, 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 the Uyghurs never had it. There was never a one child policy for the Uyghurs at any point in time of the, the, the Muslims living in the, in the West of China. Um, but, now the difference is, unlike us who have been like living in this useless eater society for so long, China is approaching it from the standpoint of applying or redefining the fourth industrial revolution, which is basically 3D printing, you know, computer learning, like machine learning, AI, uh, automation. They're applying it in ways that they're building one of the biggest dams in the world that's going to be done in 2024 using not a single human that's going to make this hydroelectric dam. It's wow. going to produce something like 60 gigawatts of, of electricity. Um, on the, off the Yangtze River. That's how they're talking about 3D, 3D printing the dam. The, currently, the biggest the biggest structure we have ever built with 3D printing is like nine meters high in, in Dubai. Wow, a whole dam with 3D printing? That's insane. I thought I thought you just could make like little bullshit tchotchkes with 3D printing. They can do a whole dam? They're building a whole 189 meter dam. Wow. It's wildly interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, that speaks to, I mean, and and I think that this is the fundamental issue that we need to understand is that the way environmentalism exists in the West, it it is a Malthusian project and China Mm -hmm. is adopting it not because they believe it wholesale, but they're, they're adopting it because they have to, because of the pressures to from the West and also doing it in their own way, which is fundamentally different than the way we do it here, which is again that pro humanity approach um yeah. you know i take i take a lot of lines on twitter and i'm very polemic about saying i love fossil fuel and fuck environmentalists and this and that uh fuck fuck the environment i hate the environment uh i'll always <laughs> pick a human over the environment because we have to we have to do that here you know that's really what's at stake is the uh, um but but we're presented that the only paradigm we're allowed to to look at is it's it's humans versus the planet it can never be both at the same time it it has to be one or the other you have to pick one right and so we have to balance right we don't want to give up all of nature just for humanity we don't want to give up humanity just for nature so we have to balance and um the idea that that both things can and should and have to exist at the same time is out of out of the question for westerners um it's weird, eh? It's like they they they've been led to believe that the that the mind is unnatural, that everything is natural that involves no mind. But as soon as you introduce mental activity, thought, you know, quite, all of a sudden you have an unnatural phenomena that can do nothing but destroy because it's breaking the equilibrium, the, the supposed sacred equilibrium that is controlling all of like non-human nature. And it's like, well, if that were true, humans haven't been around that long. How would like if that if that perfect equilibrium was was the the, the 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 at the heart of of nature, then how did 
single-celled amoebas even exist in the first place when there was formerly no life? Why didn't it just remain rock? Why didn't those single-cell amoebas, after they appeared, just remain single-cell amoebas? Why did all of a sudden we have these higher forms of living matter organize themselves in ways that were very out of equilibrium? Well, you know, because, that, that, because right now... Of, you know, we're in the perfect yes. state right now. We have to just keep it as steady as possible. Nothing can ever change. Whoever's on top can just stay on top right now, and then that's it. Mm. No more changing, that's right? It. We gotta got to take it. a snapshot of how the world exists now, and it that's it. End of history. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the logic, right? I guess that is in, in the Francis Fukuyama thinking. That's that's really it. Like the changes were 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 the norm up until this one moment. And now we're smart enough. Wisdom is, has now emerged sufficiently that we could finally put an end to it. But it's like, that's a, that's a lot of hubris. That's yeah. a lot of arrogance. Yeah. What kind of, almost a bit of a God complex. And if you get it when you listen to like Yuval Harari as well, right? I've listened to a few of his speeches at, at Davos and Yuval Noah Harari, this, this freaky, misanthropic, pitiful, uh, schmuck called, a, called an, an intellectual. He, he, he gives one on Darwinian natural selection and how, you know, um, people used to, in ignorance, believe in, in uh, intelligent design and a creator, but now science has proven all of that was never true. It's all been random changes. And this is like, I'm, I'm paraphrasing very loosely here, but not that loose. But he's like, the truth is we've, we've discovered it was all random luck and happen chance until this moment, talking to his audience <laughs> at Davos, saying now we know that for the first time ever, there is a real natural selection appearing on the scene. And but the natural selectors are the CEOs of Dav at Davos, Facebook of Google. <laughs> yeah. What kind of? Well, I mean, what, garbage is that? Yeah, I mean, they. So to me, it seems like they 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 took religion. They said, no, religion is bullshit. We have science now, right? And science mm -hmm. is above us, right? And science is is um, objective the objective truth and. Um, but but really, science is just a product of of our own human minds. It can't it cannot be disconnected from the human minds from which it came out of. So this I it's like science has replaced uh, religion at this point because then they can say, oh no no, the, the ultimate truth, and and that's how exactly how it's used is how religion used to be used. No, this is the ultimate truth from God. No, this is the ultimate truth from science, and science is no longer about discovering the truth and and the truth being out there and you being able to prove it on your own no you have to trust science you have to trust mm -hmm. the authority you you cannot use your own you're stupid uh you know and and it, it, it's the new religion it's the new religion and yeah. it's it's also how they they attack people too who who you know get get under this the, the the cracks of this ideology and they say oh you don't believe in science and you're anti-science you're a science denier and um this is the attack that they use um yeah absolutely you know and it's it's like there's new godheads too it's just that in the, the secular godheads wear the the mantle or the names of isaac newton or you know bertrand russell or like there's a variety of these of these godheads that you know we're told we have to all respect and pay homage to and and treat as if they were just these superhumans um, who had fruit falling on their head and by virtue of this the, this fruit hitting them in the head they discovered these laws of creation um, 
which if you actually read the writings of an Isaac Newton and look at his laws of reasoning, just if he's telling you not just what he dis, what he says he discovered, which when you actually scratch the surface of these claims, you start seeing that all of the formulas that are attributed to having been made by him as discoveries were actually published and made by actual creative thinkers way before Isaac Newton in almost every case you could look at, from John Flamsteed to Samuel Gray to Kepler to Leibniz. All of the great discoveries were all knocked off, repackaged, and then attributed to this one guy, this one like hyper-autistic uh, black magician who was into just like numerology and like like alchemy. That was his entire passion and devotion. All of his works that we have are just that. We don't have any scientific works of anything by him. But despite that, if you look at his rules of logic, that he says the creative, the the, the scientist, if the if he's going to be a responsible scientist, says Newton, must use these rules, which begins with do not make hypotheses. Simply observe data of the universe, look for patterns, render laws. Don't make hypotheses non thingo. Don't make hypotheses. Hmm. And it's like, if you actually do that, you're going to mentally castrate yourself, first of all, and you're going to mystify what science is by thinking of it as this voyeuristic, descriptive, passive thing of you just like sitting there experiencing and then looking for patterns that you will then call law wrapped in symbolic logic, which may work, but you won't know why. So you'll be just like a useful like spell spell caster, but not know why your spell works. It becomes yeah. almost like hard to differentiate magic and science. But the reality, if you think about, well, human beings are not this passive uh, entity. We are constant, we're a creature of conscience, of aspiration, of imagination, of, of, you know, of ideals, of dignity. And so all of these metaphysical things are, to we're told, well, first of all, that's, that's not scientific. That's, that's emotional, subjective pollution. Um, but the fact is, no, they are real. They're scientifically real. They exist in every human's heart to greater or lesser degrees. And we want to apply discoveries in a way that make life better. Mm. So we, this, this whole like subjective objective divide is, is not real. It's an illusion. And when you are judging your scientific, pure scientific uh, theories and you're testing them in the real world, you're seeing, well, what works to accomplish a goal? What, you know, if I want to go and, and mine an asteroid or, or develop um, uh, some economic activity on the far side of the moon, like China wants to do with Russia and mine some helium three for fusion power. Well, certain ideas I'm going to discover might look really pretty and symmetrical on paper, but when I try to apply them to the universe to do things, to get the job done, I'll find very quickly that they don't work. They were just wind eggs. Whereas other ideas that I thought were fringe, crazy science that I wasn't supposed to respect, if I want to get the job done, I find that there's value in these things I was told I'm not allowed to look at. Mm. And all of a sudden you, you start through action in, you know, talk, having a conversation with the universe through action, the universe starts telling you which, which of your theories are provably uh, carry substance and which don't. And the, the, the problem of, of this consumer society model ushered in by Kissinger and, and his, his controllers is it deprived us of the ability of testing our thoughts. We just became a consumer society that wasn't going anywhere. And we stopped building things. Mm. We stopped building our nuclear power reactors in the eighties, you know? So we, we, we deinvested all of our fusion research. We didn't allow our scientists to produce the prototypes to test their thoughts out. So of course we were sitting, you know, debating whether the universe has like 
18 dimensions for this model of string theory or 36 dimensions or 82. It could be anything. It's all mathematical chimeras. It's like angel, you know, does this pin needle carry, you know, 18 angels that can dance on it or or 38,000 angels that can dance on it like they were doing in the scholastic, you know, medieval period when they were also burning people at the stake for heresy. Um, it's not that qualitatively different, unfortunately. Yeah. No, I it's it's all pseudoscience that's taken over as science now. It's all witchcraft, right? Voodoo nonsense that passes as real science and real science is brushed aside as uh you know conser- conservative or ch- you know right-wing chud or I-, I don't even know you know uh people want to hold on to their um their their gas stoves and that makes them chauvinists and um <laughs> they want to eat they want to continue to eat meat which is terrible of them it's very chauvinistic very species speciesist species centric yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, so, just want to keep raping and plundering nature. Yeah. Um, so yeah. there was another section I want to read, um, if you'll allow. Uh, oh, please. Yeah. So uh, the environmentalism in China versus the West, World Economic Forum, uh, so on and so forth. Um, so the the section is called Two Opposing Paths to a Green Future." This is the only green policy which is valid, since China is greening deserts, increasing food abundance while lifting people out of poverty. The opposing monstrosity passing itself off as green, quote-unquote green, by the World Economic Forum trustees like Mark Carney or Klaus Schwab are merely promoting a program of depopulation behind a thin veneer of saving nature. Where one defines sustainable development as a euphemism for degrowth and depopulation. I'm glad you you, you say those are the same thing because they are. Uh, there's some people who like to de- debate, but they're not. They're literally the same thing. Um, where, where one defines sustainable development as a euphemism for degrowth and depopulation under a unipolar rules-based international order, the other looks towards sustained development as a driving force for long-term growth multipolar multipolarism and um and even population increases premised on large-scale capital intensive infrastructure building where one system increases deserts by spreading solar panels across the face of the earth and in turn increasing surf, uh, surface temperatures drastically the other actually greens deserts by careful uh, reclamation desalination and water diversion programs such as china's move south water north uh yes china and india are building a lot of green energy programs and they intend to lower their rates of co2 output by 2060 however unlike the postmodern basket cases in the west who are clamoring at the fourth industrial revolution eurasian nations are not uh, resting their entire development strategy on windmills and solar panels instead what we are finding instead what we find are competent programs for hydropower oil coal natural gas hydrogen power, and importantly, next-generation nuclear with pioneering uh, work in uh, molten salt thorium as well as fusion power in the works. Looking at NASA's uh, recent surprise discovery that the world's biomass has increased by over 5%, due in large to measures uh, measured to China and India and China's uh, 
economic activity, the fact is slowly emerging into the zeitgeist that the apparent conflict between humanity's aspirations to grow versus the health of the ecosystems is a chimera. The obvious fact that carbon dioxide also happens to be considered by all chlorophyll-based life to be a delicious food should also not be lost in the rush to demonize CO2. So I think that that's very interesting uh, considering what Paul Ehrlich just said on 60 Minutes. I don't know if you caught that, but the the big no. scare that he put out there was that um, we are um, – there, we're, we're going through a mass extinction event on the earth, um, and this presents a very different picture, right? That we're, we're actually greening the earth. Perhaps we're actually um, – there's more species coming online all the time that we, we, we haven't even heard of. But we have to worry about the, the 200 to 2,000, I think, species that go extinct every year um, because of our dirty usage of, of, of industry and, and fuel. Um, but I think that this gets at the, the heart of, of – how uh yeah maybe they are trying to reduce their co2 i I don't know how much of it is that they if they actually believe in it or if they're being pressured to by the the oligarchs right um or if, if they actually want to lower their co2 but they have a fundamentally different way of going about it um where it's not, it has nothing to do with degrowth. It has nothing to do with scaling back industry. On the contrary, it has to do with scaling industry up. Yeah, yeah. No, that's. I mean, everything has to be given its proper place. And I, I do think that China and and India um, do intend to, to a certain degree, reduce some of the carbon dioxide emissions overall, but they're not stupid about it. Like they're not putting their industrial, their capital industrial productive base into any position of relying upon windmill or solar power energy. You know, like it's true. China is like the biggest investor in the world in windmills and solar panels. But if, where are they using that energy? I mean, it's, it's, it's low grade energy. It's not reliable. The Chinese know that. Um, but they're using it as far as I could see towards residential needs, which don't require capital intensive, high, high energy density forms of, of uh, power. You can have these sorts of things on your, you know, you can power basic residential needs and, and uh, you know, but it's, it's the, it's the heavy industry that requires reliable, uh, high quality energy. And, and that's where China's putting their, their, uh, their efforts. And you don't see any actual agreement. China and, and a lot of their African and Asian allies, especially have sabotaged any efforts in all of the COP 14, 15, 16, all, all the way up to the present COP 27. There's been a sabotage of any effort to try to impose mechanisms that could enforce uh, carbon emission reduction across nations by any supranational entity. There's been nothing of the sort. So they, what I think you have right now is sort of um, a dance, um, a deadly dance <laughs> that China is sort of – there's you know Aikido. Aikido is sort of the, the martial art where you kind of have to try to use the momentum of the enemy against mm -hmm. you, but you yes, try yeah. to refrain from direct hits. Yep. I think that you have that in Lao Tzu you, in, in sort of the art of war thinking as much as possible is you try to avoid direct head-on kinetic confrontation. And if anything, like China has been in a weaker position for most of the 20th century under imperialist interests. Mm -hmm. And so they've been in a reactive mode, a survival reactive mode. And so they're, they're being given conditions that are set for them that they have to then react to. 
they're not creating the situations, but they're trying to survive within them. Yeah. And if anything, use the momentum of those bad situations in any way to their advantage. Yeah. So you have this, if China's leadership today came out saying that um, the, the, the green, uh, the demonization of green energy and the belief in, in anthropogenic global warming is an actual war policy to destroy us and every industrialized nation under a depopulation ethos. If they just came out and said that, well, right there, you're like, you're doubling down on, on going for a nuclear war. Right. You're basically saying, we know that there's a war on us right now. We're yeah. declaring this war is, 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 has been happening. And now we're going to have to have some sort of symmetrical response to the fact that we're at war, that somebody wants to just to destroy us. Yeah. The same thing for the, the pandemic uh, responses. They didn't create the pandemic policy. They had it put onto their, their doorstep. And now they're, they're trying, even though in my assessment, and I hope this isn't going out on YouTube, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. YouTube? I know it's hard. it's so hard. I know it's I I've I've had I've, yeah. I've come up with that too, and I, I should start streaming on Rumble as well. I because I think that there's more of an open minded audience there, but um, yeah, no, I I know I, I find myself cutting myself off all the time, but yeah. right, I they're mean, doing they're, keto, I think yeah. in a way they're being they're being the adults in the room. They can't just mm-hmm. uh be they can't just say no, we're not doing that, and then then you know because then they're giving justification for the west to say they've created you know all this hysteria for you know and and mind control and propaganda for people in the west to say well you know we can't uh china if china embraced this idea that like co2 the co2 is bullshit and this green agenda is bullshit then then they're literally giving the west justification to attack them even more overtly than they are already uh and that that's the way i look at it anyways yeah, it's it's like it, it's it's real politic, you know. I'd love to see as much as anybody, you know, like some hardcore JFK speech coming down from Xi Jinping. I'd love to see this sort of like statecraft, but at the same time, JFK got his head blown off. Yeah, um, you know, he picked a fight. He picked way too many fights at the same time. That I don't think he fully appreciated the nature of the terrain he was he was operating within. Obviously, he didn't. He didn't have that that patient suave, uh, that patient uh, sage like patience that a Benjamin Franklin had centuries earlier, uh, and I, I think that you know it's like like you said uh, the 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 green movement has increasingly become a pseudo scientific religion, but it's more of a religion than it is a science. And you know the Eurasian leadership know that they're dealing with something of a cultish religious order, which is bursting at the seams, like what's to, to go like hyper fanatic into into a war mob, so you gotta like sort of temper that that zeal of the 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 latent um, fear driven energy that the, the misanthropic hate built up in the collective Western zeitgeist as being just having been processed through the education system, been you know we've all been given the propaganda culturally. So we we've all got if we haven't like really done a lot of research and self examined, I'm sorry, but it's likely that a lot of these subconscious bubbling forces of self-hate um, can be channeled outwards and you can be weaponized as part of a mob that you don't, that will not benefit you. Um, that's likely the, will be the case. And China has to deal with this, this fact in both the masses, but also in the auxiliaries that they have to interface to like the rep, you know, the Ursula van der Leyen's, the, those who have been selected as the, the Western technocrats to that are interfacing with them. They have to figure out how do you, 
how do you maintain some form of relationship whereby a climate of possible uh, common ground can somehow be reached? That's what you, you're, you're trained to do in proper diplomacy mm-hmm. is you're just trying to find a, a way to maximize keeping bridges alive without detonating yeah. so that somehow you're creating a climate where some creative ideas can interface and create mutual win-win uh, relationships at some point. They don't know what those are. And unfortunately, a lot of those bridges have been hyper detonated, whether it's in the form of like Nord Stream pipelines or whether it's in, you know, Western manipulation in Japan or Taiwanese uh, politics. But China's trying. They, they don't want nuclear war. Neither does Russia. Yeah, it's a, it's a peace through development kind of idea, right? This idea that yeah. um, we we can the more we build, the more we share common interests, the less incentive we have to destroy each other. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I try to emphasize that in the, the piece, uh, we were talking about the, about the degrowth tankies, the one that I just wrote, um, where juxtaposing this idea that China is constantly saying to the U S please, let's work together and, and, and getting that across to, to Americans and people in the West and saying, China wants to be our friend. They want to work with us um, is so important, I think, because uh, the ruling class, just they just project all kinds of bullshit onto China saying, oh, they're just trying to compete and steal our stuff and, 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 and take over and rule. And it's just it's total projection, I think, by our ruling class um, mm-hmm. and that that ultimately like regular people just they just want peace. They just want peace in yeah. their lives. Right. <laughs> That's it. That's really it. Yeah, no, for sure. And that that that, that um, essay you did is fantastic. Thank you. I'm uh, I'm gonna circulate that massively. And yeah, you zero in on it. I mean, there there's the the leftist movements, which which used to be the 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 pro progress movement that that was fighting to uplift humankind to a better way and fight for economic development for Africa and end imperialist activities. That was the left of the 1940s, 50s, 60s. That's gone it's turned into this green ideological uh, death cult with a weird spin on marxist leninism that that underpins a trotskyite sort of uh hyper anarchistic mode of, of of rationality it's it's really strange it's it's messy it's everywhere and it's, it's so synthetic and yeah. so dangerous yes considering these are the people who are like the ones who have the biggest hearts right they they the, the left are the people who generally have access to their emotions, whereas you find with the case of too many on the right, it, they've killed their emotions in favor of just some sort of a romanticized enlightenment glorification of trying to be like hyper stoic, you know, logicians who can just like you know impose your will to power in a chain way onto the onto the world. Yeah, neither one is healthy. Like, yeah. and I, I think that I, I'm more I have more sympathy with those who have compassion in a heart. So I get it where the social justice right. Uh, movement sort of where it where it grows from it grows from someplace good but it carries all of these trojan horses and poison in with it that really make people you know essentially again weaponized mobs who yeah. don't know that they're they're acting against their own self-interest and the interest of people living in other parts of the world that really need development like in africa so you juxtapose that very well too by just getting across like look at what the africans themselves really want who have been living and suffering under <laughs> under empire for so long they really want industrial development they don't they they they're not interested in the uh the things that you're that you as a greta thunberg lover are telling them they should they should want they don't want that they do not give a shit about their ecological footprint you know no they don't and they shouldn't 
they shouldn't. That is a luxury to care about that shit. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, the, the, the political sphere of people that I find and that some, some people agree with this that I find the the most on the nose is the MAGA people in in the United States, the, the, the Make America Great, uh, people who uh, followed Trump. Um, and I know you, you, you speak uh, – you, you say a lot of complimentary things about Trump and, and – for myself, when when he first ran, I grew up in New York, so I always saw Trump as just some out of touch rich guy uh, who was on reality TV. So when he ran, I was like, "This is a jo- this is a joke. What's going on?" Yes. And I didn't expect much, and you know, to a degree, believed some of the liberal hysteria about him. But then, the longer he was in office, the more I was like, "Actually, this guy is like, he's actually pretty good. Like he's he's doing it different than we have been doing it for so long." And mm-hmm. he, he riled up uh, this base of people who do actually care about, you know, the sovereignty of, of our nation and and making our country great again, great again. And and like this is this is such a good thing. And, and it's ironic to see like you know, the MAGA people, the people who are accused of being chuds, you know, and the enemy and, and neo fascists um, by the people who are then like Slava Ukraini, you know, <laughs> Um <laughs> It, it's a total reversal. Yeah. It's a upside down world we live in. But um, I, yeah, I see the most potential in in people like that. Or in Canada, you you guys had the trucker, the trucker movement. Um, I know Holland, don't have... the Netherlands had like a similar kind of uh, the farmers uh, protest against uh, the farming bans. Um, and these are mm-hmm. like the real industrial hearts. Of our nations that are slowly dying, the the flyover country. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's. No, I, if, if, if Western civilization is going to survive the crisis it's brought upon itself, it's going to be through the blue collar um, these groupings, right? Who it'll be because they're able to get their acts in gear and organize with with a, a, a sharper degree of wisdom than I've seen so far uh, deployed. But this is the only thing viable in the United States that I see right now is within that mega grouping of actual authentic Republicans. Um, there's nothing else that I – if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have any hope that the U.S. could make it through the coming storms. Hmm. Um, because it's there, there's something to work with. And, and I try to – I mean that's my target audience too um, from the United States side and similar like-minded people in Europe and in Canada, as well as who I try to direct my, um, my, <clears throat> my narrative to, um, to give people that historic edge or that philosophical edge that I think is lacking because a lot of, there's so much misinformation as well strewn throughout the information ecosystem to deflect attention away from the causal agencies that have been working for many generations to bring about this human, um, mass slaughter. Yeah, under this you know so you, new you, world you order agenda. You mentioned in the beginning how you were you could have been swept up in all this conspiracy theory stuff, right? When you were looking for answers, mm-hmm. um, oh, yeah. and I, I think often of the QAnon people who um, gravitate oh, yeah. towards my work, and but they're hard to find because they've been you know um, you know the hammers come down on them, right? And they've been kicked off of all kinds of social media, and and part of me wonders if QAnon was this cult thing that was created a synthetic cult that was created that that sort of funnels people who are looking for those answers and then funnels them into this this dead end and and turns them into a sort of a laughing stock um and there's so yeah i mean there's I all, so. yeah i guess his, history i'll just have to wait until history plays out and maybe we'll get 
declassified documents about that. But um, <laughs> well, I, I think that there yeah. definitely was people. On, there were people from the intelligence patriots in intelligence and military uh, groupings that definitely worked hard and, and still are working to avoid uh, the U.S. going into uh, into hellfire. Um, I don't think Trump's success in 2016 could have been made possible were it not for such a thing to happen. Um, General Flynn is one of many um, patriots who are, you know, who have experience and insight. And but he himself has also said on record, the QAnon process has the has the markings of an of of, of a psychological operation. Yeah. Um, and I, but but despite that, I think yeah, it's there. There's a lot. There's a lot of false narratives that have been constructed to that attract people through the the truthful parts of the the information provided. But at the same time that you are consuming the the truth and the honey, there's some poison apple under the honey that you're you're also getting getting at, which are which is weakening your ability to organize as an effective creative citizen in such a fashion that Trump was doing. Like, I mean, I, people ask me, well, what can be done? And it's like, well, look at the policies that Trump was actually putting into action, especially from 2016 to 19 or 20. Um, that was making him the most potent and get making him the greatest threats and enemies amongst the oligarchy. And you'll find it. People, our memories are very short, but it wasn't, you know, there's a whole variety of actual concrete policies from um, realigning the U.S. Uh, military policy with that of Russia in Syria to breaking the U.S. free of any obligations to um, obey NATO's mandate to breaking out of the funding of the World Health Organization and obeying its protocols or, you know, there's a whole variety of things talking about bringing in Glass-Steagall, talking about, not even talking, but actually building a treaty with China so that China could be the purchaser of U.S. finished goods from a rehabilitated Philadelphia and Detroit, which went into phase one in, in January of 2020. Um, $350 billion worth, right? Phase one, it was going to be a multi-trench process. Um, the, the Alaska to, to Canada uh, railway system that Trump put an executive order backing to build rail and open up uh, development corridors in the Arctic with, if you actually read the, the program um, that was being circulated that he endorsed, it was all based upon the China Belt and Road growth model that was going to justify the expenditures in building this rail and pipelines into, the, into Alaska and, and feasibly beyond into Russia. So there's so many things and I've just scratched the surface of a few um, that it's like, if you want to have a viable um, process of organizing towards something that can work, uh, do those sorts of things again, like organize a movement that, that organizes for concrete, workable, functional, viable <laughs> policies that have worked every time they've been done in history from JFK to to FDR, to McKinley, to Lincoln, to yeah. Alexander Hamilton. There's like certain common policies that have provably, every time they've been done, removed the power from an oligarchy, extracted the deep state fifth columnists in America, and empowered American citizens to have small and medium enterprises and live longer and happier lives every single time. Do that. Because right now, the only people doing that in the world is what's happening in the multipolar alliance of Russia, China, and their allies, Iran. But that's the only place where we see a viable fight against the oligarchy being carried out, which is the fight that we used to wage before you and I were born. Imagine, so it's like, imagine it if works. we could do it from within the house, right? If we could join uh -huh. with Russia and China and, and 
taking on the oligarchy and returning to our revolu- uh, revolutionary roots and and saying fuck you to these guys and and reigniting that friendship it, i mean it'd be game over right it'd be game over game over game over that's the greatest threat to the oligarchy it, yeah. it, it works that's why trump was moving in that direction he made some great headway um and people need to really think that through very very deeply and uh yeah like you said this 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 is the sort of thing that has kept the oligarchy like oligarchical grand strategists have lost sleep <laughs> many a night over the last centuries because of this prospect so well i mean i think ultimately they are doomed, right? Because they they run on this entropic system, and eventually they're they're going to run out of gas, figuratively and literally. Um, and yeah, I guess we just we have to be prepared for what what steps we're gonna we're gonna take um, for when that happens, and we can seize on the opportunity. But you're right. I mean, this the left and right stuff. It's so captured. Um, you wrote a little bit about uh, how uh, Steve Bannon. And George Soros are basically they they they're sort of like the left and the right, but they're they're ultimately all working for the same the same system at the end of the day. Um, I mean, do you want to say a little bit more about maybe Steve Bannon and his connection connection to George Soros? And yeah, because a lot of people yeah, okay. think a lot of leftists attack me because I attack George Soros. I'm uh, very openly hate George Soros, and they say, "Oh, you're anti-Semite." Yada yada. Um, yeah, like the stream or you're a green fascist. Exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah. I just wrote, I wrote a thing for, um, um, Ryan Christian over at the last American vagabond. Um, I was really happy that he published, he's actually published two. The first one was on Steve Bannon and, and the Chinese, Chinese deep state, which took some of that material that you're referencing from the, the, the special report that you're, you're reading. And I, I, I added like 80% more material to it, uh, to situate, well, what the hell is the Bannon phenomenon within a broader, broader, great game. And, uh, and in it, I, I, I launch in my starting point is two quotes, one by Bannon, one by Soros, both of which say, you know, the world's greatest threat is Xi Jinping and the, the Chinese Communist Party. It has to be overthrown for democracy to win. <laughs> so both of them are saying like the exact same words in, in two different settings. Yeah. Um, and then I begin by by just unpacking uh, Steve Bannon's bosom buddy, um, Miles uh, Guo. Um, Guo Wingwei. You, you know, Miles Guo? I'm not familiar. I I think maybe I remember from reading in, in your paper, but no, I'm not. I'm not super familiar. Yeah, he's like this this uber wealthy um, joker. He's such a goofball, but he's he he avoided um, the the Xi Jinping crackdowns on corruption back in 2015 when he escaped right. China. He was he was one of the richest businessmen in China. He was worth several billion dollars with Zenith Enterprises. He also had a JP, a JP Morgan affiliate he was representing in real estate. Um, but anyway, he, he was corrupt as all sin. And uh, so far, there's been 4.6 million uh, Chinese officials who have um, been punished for corruption. And some of them have actually faced the death penalty. And we're talking like not low-level uh, fish here. We're talking like a former justice minister of China, two former heads of the state uh, security ministry, um, one of whom was a direct handler of Miles uh, Guo, who was a guy who came in um, in the 80s under a Soros stooge, because Soros in the 80s had his way with China, and that was largely under the conditions set by the Trilateral Commission. So Soros even had one of his one of his personal guys, uh, Zhao Ziyang, who had run a 
co-run a think tank with Soros called, I think, the New China Foundation or something, or New China Economy Foundation. Anyway, and this guy became the, the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party from 1987 to 89 after he spent seven years as premier uh, doing a lot of damage. He brought in Milton Friedman to China. He was called the, the Chinese Gorbachev. Um, but he was a total Soros operation, uh, funded also by the NED, the National Endowment for Democracy. And, and a lot of people don't know this, but the thing that happened in 1989 um, in Tiananmen Square was not what we were told it was. It, um, I used to think tens of thousands of students were killed by the, the Chinese Communist Party. And I know a lot of people think that. But actually, when you look at it, not only is it was none of that true. Um, there were something like 89 or so Chinese military officials who were burnt to death. The Chinese were not allowed to even, the, the, the soldiers weren't even allowed to carry weapons. They were burnt to death. There were agent provocateurs, and it was really a Maidan, like a Ukrainian 2014-style Maidan operation to, in, to bring um, the Soros operative, Zhao Ziyang, into full dictatorial uh, power and bringing total free markets, privatize everything, just like what was happening in Russia at the exact same time. That was his job. That was his assignment. And it didn't work. Instead, what he got was house arrest for life. His allies went to jail or they, some of them escaped via Hong Kong triads and MI6 into the United States where they became sort of a foreign deep state working against China from for the last 30 years. Miles Guo was one of these student provocateurs who was put in jail for two years at that time. When he, As soon as he got out, he had patronage from certain people who we now see going to jail. Um, but he's protected by something very insidious embedded within the Chinese governing strata and w- immediately became a like a super wealthy real estate mogul and and uh, speculator. So he basically escaped, became a bankroller. He escaped prison in 2014, landed in New York with a, with a letter of recommendation from Tony Blair, his personal friend, uh, that allowed him to buy a condo for $60 million off of the Hudson, uh, Hudson River. And... Um, he started bankrolling Steve Bannon's war room and they started co-founding these different media enterprises, um, a variety of them and working very closely with Epoch times. Yeah. The Falun Gong, so, right? Falun Gong. Yeah. The new Tang dynasty uh, run by the, uh, the intergalactic alien Messiah. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's weird. Um, but anyway, so in, in the case of Steve Bannon, like what the hell is this get, this guy who Trump fired rightfully so? Um, well, I spent some time in, in uh, my new book, uh, volume four of the Clash of the Two Americas, uh, with a fuller chapter on this as well, going through the, uh, remember how earlier on about an hour ago I brought up the, uh, the, the pan-European movement, which was this controlled right-wing counter gang to the the left wing sort of deconstructionist bolshevik movements of, of anarchy of the of the 1918 1919 period yeah so count, this was run by this guy count kalergi uh, kudenhova kalergi and kudenhova kalergi um was a, a high level from a high level venetian family um formally but he played a big role his whole family played a very high level role within the, the habsburg power structures and the Habsburg power structures we saw took a big hit right after World War One, but they didn't go away. No oligarchical bloodline goes away; they're still there. And so he was out of a job. And so what he did is he created this this organization that united the international right, basically all fascist, around this idea of reviving the Crusades. Hmm. That's why he even designed the European, what would become later the European Union, 
was entirely designed by him, including his call to to make the uh, the national anthem Beethoven's fourth movement movement of the Ninth Symphony. That was Count Kalergi, um, which ironically was also used in uh, the Tiananmen Square in 1989, um, which I don't think Beethoven would have been happy with at all, seeing no. how his his beautiful music was was so abused. But Kalergi um, created not only that, he had a prodigy named Otto von Habsburg, and von Habsburg um, went on to control the pan-European uh, movement all the way until his death from 1972 to 19 2011. Habsburg also co-founded during this time an, another organization run by this old monastery or run out of this headquarters in the old monastery of Tristuli in uh, Italy. And this monastery, it was founded in 1204 by Pope Innocent III, who was the, the, the crusader pope who launched a ton of different wars between Christians and Muslims. And he built this thing to celebrate the fourth crusades completion in 1204, which was for anybody who knows a bit of this history. And that's why I call my book, the, the Anglo Venetian origins of the deep state. Cause in 1204, the fourth crusade involved Christians from the West being deployed to go to the Holy land, but they never made it. They used Venetian ships. They got themselves in debt to pay the debt. The Venetian said, well, go and uh, destroy Constantinople for us. Now, the problem here, morally, is that Constantinople is a Christian city. So the, the Crusaders ended up going to a Christian city of Constantinople and one other city further north, destroyed them, looted them, killed, like, all of the males over the age of 30, Christians, looted them, which is why in Venice you have, like, all of these, like, Byzantine sculptures and things in St. Mark's Square. It was all looted from Constantinople. And then what happened after that was that was a coup d'etat. So Venice then became where it was formerly Constantinople as a big power broker and Venice was the junior partner in the Byzantine Empire, all of a sudden Constantinople became annihilated and Venice became the hegemon, the global empire, the center of command structure, controlling international bullion, all of all of Byzantium's uh, maritime trade corridors, uh, all were taken over by Venice. So this was, this Tristuli monastery was designed, was commissioned to celebrate that. At the same time, and there's a whole bunch of other things that tie into proto-Jesuits proto and everything else. But so Steve Banning now is the head, the face of this monastery. And, it, and the, this, this organization that runs out of this monastery is called the Dignitae Humanae Institute, which Otto von Habsburg led and ran. And the idea is to give a veneer of healthy conservative Christianity which sounds attractive on the surface, a lot of very nice things, man made in the image of a living creator, all very good things. But the, the poison pill, the Trojan horse, is that it's designed to unite the right around a Christian ethos in opposition to Islam and Confucianism and other civilizations. Mm -hmm. And so in, in effect, all it is, is it's a new crusader uh, movement being created as a reaction to the woke deconstructionist postmodern sort of neo-bolshevik ideology of deconstructing the traditions of civilization which is exactly what happened in 1918-1919 and people were so disgusted by this like I, this atheistic ethos of just recreating man under this like new idealized marxist veneer um or automaton that would be now the productive man but it was very hyper atheistic it saw it was antagonistic to religious traditions so people then were reactionary conservatives yeah. in response yeah same thing is being done today and bannon has not been able to sort of uh get the muscle behind it as he has wanted or his handlers but uh 
it's being put in place. And I think the danger now is that if the economic conditions become so desperate under the conditions of an economic breakdown where people's emotions, all those bubbly sub subconscious forces that we currently can ignore because they're stability. When, when you have now an economic hell on earth that comes to the surface and then you have something much more um, dangerous that oligarchs will work with and channel that energy into something more destructive which is gearing up for a war with China and, and, you know, any part of the Muslim world, Iran or other parts of the world that don't want to die in a death cult. So um, that's something. So Bannon represents so much more than you think. And even though there's a lot of like good information from epoch times or on the, in the war room regarding the great reset or regarding uh, election fraud, I shouldn't even say these words. I'm sorry if I get this. You're, you're good. If we, if we lose it, it's worth it. It's fine. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> so there's attractive things, and I won't. I'm not saying that all of that should be dismissed. But yeah. again, Trojan horse, foreign policy. As soon as they get you in and, and trusting of what they're they're saying on the on a, on a domestic policy or cultural crit critique, which are all generally quite good, that's when all of a sudden you're now your sentinels are down. You're more inclined to then accept whatever other analysis they have to say about what's really going on in Iran or in China or in wherever else. Venezuela, who cares? And that's where they, they, they get you. So Ben is, is, I think, I don't, I think he's authentic probably um, in the sense that I think he, he's not a witting operative. I don't think he's self-aware in that sense. I think he's willing to go to prison for his beliefs. That doesn't make him less of an operative. Um, just to say, you know, probably um, makes him a better so, one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, you know, Lenin, Trotsky, and, and but Bannon says that he models his techniques, his organizing techniques off of Lenin. He's even said so in a in an interview. Now he just he means I I want to tear down this the structures of the establishment. Now that might be very cathartic and very satisfying for people to want to hear, but at the end of the day, it's like, well, what are you actually building? Right. Uh, like, yeah. No, the, the, we have to base base it on building, right? Building a better world and not tearing things down. My friend Caleb uh, talks about the difference between city builders and vandals, right? Uh, so mm -hmm. we want to be city builders. And you see this sort of Antifa kind of, you know, anarchist streak of tear, tearing everything down. You see it on the left and the right. Um, and, wow. you know, the left is is my focus of critique, but you see the same shit on the left and the right. They're they're a mirror image of each other, um, and then most of the control happens because they get so caught up with their mirror image of themselves, and they say they're the bad guys that they can't think beyond that. Right? They say, at least I mean Steve Bannon, I'm sure is thinking on a much higher level, uh, but the people who are influence within that influence network, they and 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 look to somebody like Steve Bannon or whoever else, whoever, whatever influencer, whether they're on the right or the left. Um, yeah. And then they're under that spell. Let me say something about this too, because this is a, uh, so important. And, and actually just this morning, I, I had a, a new article published on the last American vagabond on the, the fallacy of Keynes and von Hayek. The thing about this, because people wonder like how, or they should wonder, how is it that the democratic party during the course of the cold war became the party of John Maynard Keynes and the, the the Republican Party became the the Austrian school libertarian party of Friedrich von Hayek and von Mises. How did that happen? And it's like if if you're a Republican, you you kind of have to 
self-identify as an absolute free marketeer, devoid of any, like, antagonistic to any idea of government regulation. And if you're a, a Democrat in, or a Canadian liberal, same thing. You kind of have to identify as being a Keynesian, top-down, you know, uh, planning, um, <clears throat> which can be very disruptive to personal liberty, as we're now seeing viscerally with this insane Green New Deal stuff and the, the top-down centralized, you know, command structures that are deploying uh, scarcity creation policies. That being said, how did that happen? Because John Maynard Keynes and von Hayek were lifelong friends. Hmm. Both of them were having a debate, you know, in the London School of Economics, the Fabian Society School in 1932 that became popularized as the thing that, that was supposed to shape the left and the right. And if you look at von Hayek and, and also von Mises, they were they were part, why do they call it the, the Austrian school that they were members of? Well, the Austrian school was the Habsburg school of court economists all the way to the, the founder of the Austrian school, Karl Menger, who was the, the retainer of uh, Count, uh, I forget which Habsburg uh, of the House of Wittelbosch, like the, who committed suicide, um, <laughs> probably. <laughs> yeah, I mean, his teacher probably didn't help with that. But this whole school is just retweaking British free trade uh, theories of Adam Smith, who himself was an agent working on behalf of patrons in the city of London, in the British Foreign Office to try to create a, a pseudoscientific justification on why the new American colonies should never develop industrial uh, independence and they should remain agrarian-based, underdeveloped, no protectionism, and thus dependent upon the, the higher um, power structures located on the other side of the ocean in, London, in England, which, could, which said, you know, we're the ones comparative advantage, right? Like we're the ones with the, the industrial base. So we do that. You have a lot of land. You do that to make food for us. And uh, we'll sell you things that, that you're not allowed to make yourself. And so Adam Smith's theories were simply a political justification to keep the British empire in a controlled position. And they were retweaked a little bit, but essentially it's the same thing with Karl Menger and his students who became the advisors to the fascists of Austria, um, the leading fascist uh, partners of Mussolini and other, were all seeing as their advisors Ludwig von Mises, von Hayek, mm. the entire school. So it's like, do they really care about your personal freedom? Is that really what they care about? Is your right to just be free and be creative? Do they, or is that something that is again attractive, honey? And maybe they have a secret doctrine or a secret teaching where the actual handlers of political power, who are their patrons, you know, the ones managing the Mont Pelerin society. Or, uh, you know, there's so many different, you know, Heritage Foundation, other other little think tanks that all grew in the 1950s under the Cold War, especially taking over into the 1960s. Um, maybe the actual handlers of these things know that they want to atomize every individual potential citizen into a hedonistic lust beast mm. who cannot think in any other way but monetarism and self-hedonism in, in order to control the, the gas particles in some sort of an, a top-down structure where none of the gas particles know what the other gas particles are doing, and the structure itself is going to be maintained by a Habsburg-like, you know, uh, Catholic-type pseudo or pseudo-Catholic fascist monarchical operation, um, or some variant of it that's working very closely with its liberal imperialist oligarchical counterparts from the House of Windsor. Yeah. Um, and these oligarchs always, you know, there's this like cooperation amongst thieves. They will like have rivalries and backstab each other at occasion. And certainly the Habsburgs probably weren't happy to have the carpet pulled from under their feet in 1919 
when the Austro-Hungarian Empire was dismantled. But despite that, there is always collusion and collaboration around a, a common agreement that I might have lost this particular chapter in the great game, but the game of, like, it's mine... That's the game. The, the great game that the, all, all the oligarchs are playing is it's mine. And uh, they all agree that the rules can only be maintained if every individual citizen on the earth within the game is nothing more than a talking cow. Um, and so they agree with that, that no matter what, we all have to make sure that people have a self-identity of an, a, a low-level hedonistic beast with no conception of thinking about the laws of creation are acting upon them reciprocally. They can't think about those things. And if, as long as we can maintain that, we can fight with each other, try to have bigger pieces of the pie, stab each other in the back. Uh, yeah. But we all agree on these things. And it's smart of them to want to capture as much of the market as they can within this construct of like thinking in that very specific way is man is uh, just another animal is just a talking cow, as you say. Um let's let's capitalize on all the different iterations that we can do of that you know and then you get these people who come up and they think well my version of man as a talking cow is done this way and mine is done this way and mine is done and then yeah. we'll sell that ideology to any anybody who wants to you know that way you're buying the same product no matter what it just doesn't ha it just has a different label on it you know that it's the same same ideology same crap ide ideology but it's presented as a different thing i just that just rung a bell to me too cuz yeah we're talking about the convergence of these different like fake left rights karl popper who yeah <laughs> who was the patron and um uh mentor of george soros who created open society right open society and its enemies karl popper karl popper was a member of the same mopelleray society fabian um uh grouping that people like Von Mises and Von Hayek were also members of. So when Soros is coming around with his like, you know, a new new economy institute, um, his like think tank that he created as part of this roundtable movement from uh, Oxford in 2009, um, he's creating like a Soros university to do this too. He's basically, look at what he's saying. He's like, Karl Popper taught me all I know. He sees himself as an economic genius. And he says, you know, like we, we need a new system of economic theories that, uh, replace the obsolete theories of the, um, you know, globalization era of liberalism. And he's like, these theories have to just simply obey all of the students who come into our, our facilities and are going to be given uh, sponsoring by our foundation. Um, they're allowed to have infinite freedom to think of any theories that they want as long <laughs> as they obey the two laws. One, the belief, the, the rejection of human rationality, that people are fundamentally irrational beings. Right. And number two, that the system as a whole is is uh, um, entropic is a stable system. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is sta stasis governs all human systems. Mm. So if you believe that stasis governs all human systems and you believe that everybody is fundamentally irrational, every particle, you're basically saying, yeah, it's, it's entropy is the law of the universe and everybody has to be given their hedonistic rights to ex like, you know, maximize their own pleasure, avoid pain, right. but without any concept of what the whole is doing, and, which right. sounds a lot like what these radical right wing, um, and the meaning you know, of life libertarian is, people. the meaning of life is to wring as much joy, personal joy as you can out of it. It, is, it has nothing to do with being, creating a better future for future human beings. Right. 
and so left and right, they come together, and, and just like Bertrand Russell in 1919, he wrote a book on, on Bolshevism and anarchism, and he actually says the, the, the ideal that we should all strive for is absolute anarchism. That's literally what Bertrand Russell himself says. Now, this is the Bertrand Russell who's calling for a world government and global population control. Mm. You're a guy who actually cares about the type of ideals that an anarchist believes in of personal freedom. No, I'm sorry. You're, you're not genuine. Um, it's a trap. <laughs> it's, total, it's all no, a trap. It's total hedonism. And, uh, you know, I did, a, I did a stream all about Canada recently because the MAID program uh, was so mm. so fucking disgusting to me. I was like – this is, I can't believe there isn't more outrage about it, <laughs> but um, and and even some uh, popular uh, political channels are endorsing it uh, that I've come across. And I I say how can you how can you do this? Because I think it goes back to that idea that life is about how much pleasure you can wring out of it, right? And this idea that like life isn't worth living if you can't like go around and like you know fuck everyone and like you know, do drugs and, and, and just be, be hedonistic, right? If, if you're laying on a hospital bed, then your life is not worth, worth living or if you're in a wheelchair or whatnot. Um, and that's where you start to get like le left-wing people who seem like they're like, oh, I, I care so much, but I care so much that I think that people should be allowed to die if they don't feel pleasure, you know? And that's, <laughs> I think, that's uh, no, it, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's really pathetic. I'm glad that you 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 took aim at that. Um, but yeah, it really I think it just indicates just how uh, spiritually impoverished we've become as a society that we've not learned to enjoy the pleasures of the spirit and of the mind, which transcend the body. And so because people haven't had that much experience with those higher sublime pleasures, all we're left with is the you know, the idea that, well, if my body breaks down, my penis doesn't work anymore, if I'm physically in some sort of uh, ordeal, it's not worth living. There's nothing worth that. I've never experienced anything more that would give me meaning to live if not these pleasures. And so you look at the other, at other people and their situations from your own personal filter. And you're like, well, I guess it would be more gentle and humane to kill off, you know, grandma or, or that, you know, person who's a useless, now I won't say useless eater because they, they don't think that way, but that person who's just, you know, but it's they're feeling it's depressed and they're, uh, they're, they're going through anxiety yeah. and they really are, are not handling it and they want that suicide pill. We should just do them a favor of giving it to them then, you know? Well, the useless eater thing is embedded in their thought process. But if you say yeah. it out loud, then they say, whoa, 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 you can't say that. You know, and that goes yeah. back to that service service uh, economy argument of like, no, that you, you're basically creating a class of, of useless eaters who are just there to service as long as their services are needed. When their services are no longer needed or cannot be acquired, then they, they're no longer needed. You know, they're, they're extra. They're superfluous. Uh, you're not building your economy around that, an idea that people – there's no such thing as useless eaters. You're, you're still – you're avoiding that, but it's still there. It's still underlying the, the yeah that, yeah no you're right i mean it's it's like something which you don't say you're not supposed to say the, the quiet parts out loud yeah so uh the, the those who promoted the the situation that put people into this this logical set of of triage trappings masquerading with a, a, a an emotional compassionate veneer they themselves don't believe that they're hard, like it's hardcore fascists at the top who really want to do what hg wells and George Bernard Shaw and, and all of the Bertrand Russell, like you look, listen to the writings of how these guys 
speak about the poor and population control. And it's disgusting. They, are, they hate humanity so much. But they're also Fabian socialists who, you know, are, are really the, the party of the working men who, who care about compassion, you know. And yeah. it's like, no, I'm they sorry, this so is how Gene played. Yeah, they yeah. just care so much. I mean, yeah. so I, I, my a little bit of my background is that I live in this town called Kingston, city, a very small city of Kingston in the Hudson Valley of New York. And I happen to live in a place where Peter Buffett, the son of Warren Buffett, is doing – he believes in all this degrowth, depopulation stuff. And he is a total bleeding-heart liberal, believes in centering the voices, believes in you know rate, lifting up the women of color, things like that. He is the, the, the caring, bleeding-heart liberal personified. But he, he is deeply Malthusian. He just blurbed a book about how we need to reduce the population down to like – one billion, um, I, and it's I, I. It goes hand in hand at this point. It's almost like you have you have to be you have to have that PR of like, oh, I I, I just care so much because that vulgar Malthusianism is. It, then you'd just be called a fascist outright, and you wouldn't get away with it for very long. You kind of have to create these euphemisms well that's why they have to call it sustainability they have to because if they said what they actually think nobody would go for it (laughs) yeah uh yeah kill the dark people uh no i mean no that wouldn't be they would nobody would would accept that so yeah it's euphemisms and you know narrative reframings redefining our definitions instead what peter buffett says is that we've gotten africa addicted to the same mind virus that we have which is Watiko. They call it the Watiko mind virus, which is about consuming too much. And then mm. Africa, we're getting Africans sick with this mind virus where they want to consume as much as we do in the Western world. So. Oh my God. I, <laughs> it's insane. It's insane. And he's one of the biggest funders of Black Lives Matter, um, all these social justice organizations. Uh, oh man, yeah, that's gross. Wild. Well, you know, it, it reminds me a little bit of um, in Cynthia's book. Here, I, I got a copy of it here. Um, I'm telling you, I'm going to send you her, her email. You'd love to talk to her. So this is her book. All right, it's called uh, "The Empire on Which the Black Sun Never Set: The Birth of International Fascism and Anglo-American Foreign Policy." Now, in it, she's got a chapter on uh, going through the the origins of uh, political Zionism. It's it's a controversial chapter. It's it's spicy. It's spicy. <laughs> nice. But one of the ironies of it is that all of the co-authors of the Balfour Accords, which or the Balfour Declaration, which sort of established through the, the League of Nations the foundation upon which the later state of Israel would be created, were themselves almost entirely all radical anti-Semitic fascists. Hmm. Um, representing the worst elements, Leo Amory, anti-Semite, uh, Oswald Mosley played a role, like British Union of Fascists, and Oswald Mosley played a role in that. Um, uh, Lloyd George, Alt Milner, like all of these people hate the Jews. <laughs> they're and they're they're hyper-fascist people. And it's like, do you guys really care about the Jews so much? And it's if you read a Kalergi, Kudenhove Kalergi played a, a very key role as a grand strategist, along with his father, um, in, in sort of creating or uh, popularizing the, the, the policy of, of trying to figure out what we do with the problem of these Jews. And he's like, he's very clear, and she's got tons of quotes, 
where they, they, they identify that, you know, look, we've got these two Jews. We've got the good Jews and we've got the bad Jews. Oh, and the good Jews are the Jews that are going to be like more malleable, more adaptive to the type of cultural norms we want to bring about. The ones who are a little bit more Protestantized, we can we can sort of be we're, we're, we have more capability of getting them to um, re-sculpt themselves and break away from from their traditions because they already have started doing that. And then the problem is you got these like Orthodox Eastern European Russian Jews. Uh, they're they're more inflexible. They're not inclined to adapt to the sorts of changes we know we need to bring into being. And and you can tell they despise these bad Jews so much, but they're like you know, we should find a way to deal with them by maybe figuring out a way to like get them all into a very controlled environment. <laughs> That's a very hostile environment. And they're looking at Angola. They're looking at some zones in Africa, but they settle. Obviously the, the, the goal was always to get, a, get them into the old crusading crusader zone of the Holy land, right in the middle of like a zone that would be very easy to destabilize, mm. you know, which is exactly what they do. So the British are going, going around at the same time, promoting the most, the worst, most you know, cultish uh, forms of the Muslim Brotherhood um, through the British Mandate of Palestine that are at the at, at the same time as they're promoting this uh, other brand of political Zionism around the the, the Jabotinsky uh, flavor, which they're they're then playing against each other. And you know, you got a lot a lot of good Jews who are just being played with and and sacrificed. They don't know what's going on. Just like you have a lot of good Arabs and Muslims who are being sacrificed. And they're being toyed with on the great game with these synthetic ideologies. And and yet the people like Kalergi is sounding like he's like this bleeding heart, you know, lover of Jews. And all of these people are, are doing the same thing. And no, they don't care. They hate, they hate these people. Like they hate the black people. They hate, they hate the white people too, who are not like, uh, you know, of the, of the higher castes, but they really are racist and really hate these other, other uh, ethnicities. So yeah, what you're, what you're saying about Buffett's kid, not a surprise. Yeah. Well, that's what, that's what wokeism <laughs> is, right? It's just it's racism yeah. just inverted, and it's. I mean, people can hear it too. They hear the this woke speak, and it sounds like identical to what a, a an outright racist would say. Like, oh, we gotta keep the races separate, and all kinds of like bullshit, right? Um, because that's yeah. what it is, just reinvented. And that's funny too about you know that the anti-Semitism is like their ultimate shield where they're like, that's, that's when, you know, you've really ruffled some feathers that they start with, you know, your, your, uh, um, what's, what's the word you're sexist or chauvinistic. Oh, you're, mm -hmm. then you go up to like homophobic, transphobic, uh, racist, but anti-Semitic, if you get called anti-Semitic, you're, you know, you're on the right you're track done. to some, you gotten under somebody's skin. Uh, because they they if you, they use that as a sh as a total shield. Um, There's a problem too, right? I, mean, like I the, love Jewish heritage point. too, and then they'll be they'll tell me I'm an anti-Semite. I'm like, okay, you know, but yeah, no, I've gotten the antihate.com wrote a big attack piece on me and my 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 website a few months ago, um, funded by Justin Trudeau and the Canadian government. This whole website, wow. it, it, and it's, anyway, it's just. Yeah, they'll they'll just get you for on everything. But the problem is, at the same time, you've got a bunch of soft-minded conspiracy theorists who have detected that there are these broader conspiracies, yeah. and they fall for the sort of neo protocols of Zion uh, forgeries that have been put all over the intellectual zeitgeist 
to try to convince all of the conspiracy theorists or as many as possible that the Jews really are the cause of all of our problems and, and it's a big Jewish conspiracy at the end of the day. So whenever – like on my Telegram channel, I, I had to – for about a week, I had like people could make comments. I allowed it on my Telegram channel, on my posts. And I had to stop it because like 80% of the comments were, it's the Jews, it's the Jews. I'm sure a lot of these are like, you know, intelligence agency affiliated bots, but a lot of them are actually still real people who are just that like, you know, um, and I, I, I think that a lot of this stuff is probably controlled, um, by those same forces that have just always been using the Jews as a hate absorber over generations. Anytime that there's been a crisis, it, the, the the Jews have always been there to just be the the recipient of of all of the hate from the masses, and this has been going on for centuries and centuries and centuries. True. Uh, even to the point that I was surprised, but you know, when the Jewish ghettos, which were by the way created in Venice, hmm. uh, that's it's a Venetian term, um, for for centuries in Venice and a variety of other parts of Europe, um, Jews had a big population control policy. Only the firstborn child was allowed to reproduce and get married. Uh, the other kids in a, in a Jewish family were not allowed by law for centuries in Venice and, and uh, big parts of Prussia. Um, there was a whole, but big time population control. They weren't allowed to participate in trades, trade schools, um, guilds they couldn't participate in. They couldn't own land or be, or be in an army in many uh, cases. So they were all sort of forced into these very ghettofied situations that was dehumanizing, very similar to the dehumanizing cultural matrices that black slaves were, were found themselves in over generations. Um, and you needed to have like a Moses Mendelssohn who was able to, to really um, bring some, some higher universal culture to the, to his people mm-hmm. and pull them out of that sort of very, and, and meanwhile, it wasn't helping because, you know, you'd have the court, the court Jewish bankers, like the Rothschild right. clan, who was awarded a little family mercenary dynasty for good works carried out. And they were, you know, they were granted as long as they o- or remain obedient to the higher controllers. They were granted a lot of money and would, they would carry out the economic terrorism against uh, whatever rival was supposed to be economically crushed by the uh, the black nobility. Or the Sassoons, or the Montefiori's, or there's a few of these families, you know, and, and it didn't it didn't do any favors for the broader Jewish community because the fact is these weren't really Jews at the end of the day. The, at, at, by 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 agreeing to that arrangement, they they were effectively Satanists, like more than yeah. anything else. They're they're willing to kill their own people by far. They didn't they didn't believe in the Torah. Well, I mean, Soros, um, if you've ever read his book, he starts out by talking about how he. He uh, sw- basically swindled a nonprofit foundation out of money when he was a young boy by writing a bleeding heart letter about like my fellow Jew, and he does he's he's not religious at all. He doesn't he totally admits to just using that as a way to get money out of uh, an organization. So, hmm. and and yet yeah. and yet any time you know people I criticize George Soros, people say, oh, I'm an anti semite. You know, he gets the identity without. Having to do without having to even be it, he gets to just wear it, wear it like a shield. Yeah, the guy who said on public record that working with the Nazis when I was young was the best time of my life. Yeah, I know, <laughs> uh, with a smile on his face. I know. Yeah, I, but we're not allowed to talk about it, right? We're not allowed to no. say anything. <laughs> man, I hope I don't get this video shut down off of YouTube, man. If it does, I'm I real feel, sorry. <laughs> I feel like I say shit all the time where I'm like, yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm like, uh, I'm waiting for it to happen. It's fine. It's totally fine. 
but to be you know cognizant of your time it's been we've been going two hours um so you probably are getting tired uh do you should we call it a night do you want to take if people have a few questions they want to throw out or if there's any if there's any questions that people are, are have pressing i'm i feed off this stuff I, I mean this is this is good soul food for me so you know well if anyone it. has questions um throw them in the chat now alex can put them on the screen um in the meantime uh don't forget to like and subscribe uh to the channel um if you're enjoying the content feel free to join our patreon uh become a patron subscriber um matt's work you can find matt Arrett at canadianpatriot.org uh ask about brzezinski and america's role in the technocratic era um do you want to dustin do you want to like pose that in more of a question because i could talk forever about brzezinski <laughs> the trilateral commission the technocratic uh, technotronic era but what do you would you have a specific question you would like me to address about that? Okay. It, might well, it, might, it might take a minute for the chat to catch. It up. might take a minute. Yeah, people can only write so fast. America's role in okay. Well, um, <clears throat> so for those who don't know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people do know, but Zbigniew wrote a book called um, America and the Between Two uh, Ages: America and the Technical technotronic era and he wrote that in 1970 but it was sort of it served as a bit of a manifesto for an organization that was brought online in 1973 officially called the trilateral commission and it was headed up by a fellow you probably know of named uh, david rockefeller guy who runs a chase manhattan or who ran chase manhattan bank um it had a lot of other people but uh, two leading people that were running it were included uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski as you mentioned um and uh, Henry Kissinger was another leading member nominally rivals of each other but not really again false false dualisms false dichotomies um Kissinger was sort of designed to take on the role of the liberal imperialist sort of soft imperialist type um at least on so in some ways he was he was he was not so so soft in other ways uh, whereas Zbigniew was the guy who, under especially Carter, brought in the Team B, you know, the more neocon groupings around Donald Rumsfeld. Um, actually, first, this was actually under Gerald Ford. Um, but this is where Zbigniew and, and his Team B group of the uh, former Trotskyite, uh, now neocons, were all brought in. Cheney, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz was a leading member of Team B, Paul, Paul Nitz as well, which was sort of a civilian think tank agency that was designed to run a coup and purge the U.S. intelligence of any residues of common sense um, patriots who at the time had a very level-headed, rational way of analyzing what the Soviet uh, ambitions were all about, in that these were groupings who un honestly assessed that the Soviet Union didn't want to become a one-world uh, unipolar hegemon, they didn't want to use their nuclear weapons. That was all very true. They wanted to find points of economic collaboration with the West. So these were the groupings who were pushing things like the Apollo-Soyuz Soyuz, uh, space cooperation in, in 1976. That had to be stopped. The danger of what the Apollo-Soyuz meant as far as breaking humanity free of the mutually assured destruction program of the of the Cold War was, was too much of a threat to the oligarchy. So Team the neocon, former Trotsky neocons, sort of the, the new right, 
were the, the tools used to batter that out. And, and their view was that, no, we know better. We know the Soviet Union does want to use nuclear weapons. They do want hege hege hegemony. They just are trying to trick us by acting friendly, but they really want to destroy us, and they will, unless we engage in certain things that will destroy them first. Like, uh, you know, speaking in this grouping gave rise to things like the uh, flexible response nuclear doctrine, which Obama and now Biden have really revived the idea of, of uh, allowing for the use of nuclear warheads, even in the context of, a, of an enemy that doesn't have them or will necessarily use them. Um, flexible response allows for collateral damage to be acceptable, like let's say a big chunk of Europe to be wiped out in the context of a, of a nuclear exchange with your rival. Um, so this emerged out of that, the, um, the idea of funding radical madrasas under Operation Cyclone. Um, that would then create a problem in Afghanistan where pro-Soviet government would, would be dethroned and uh, in, in Russia's soft underbelly, which would then provoke Russia to try to re restore stability and be stuck in, a, in an unwin unwinnable quagmire. Um, that was what Zbigniew brought in. So the idea of between two, the, the technotronic era, America between two, two ages is, I think, a bit of a euphemism in some ways for this fourth industrial revolution end of history age, which Zbigniew talks about in the book, an age of total surveillance, total control, right? The destruction of all free will of, of all citizens under a, a managerial class and the former industrial age that has to be destroyed. The idea of industrial productivity, industrial capitalism, we have to destroy that. And America is currently between these two ages and his job is to be the transit. The transition, the, the 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 disciple, the change agent that would usher in the transition. So, yeah, that that's how I would, I would frame the big news role. And, uh, I, I've said on Twitter that I'm pro-industrial capitalist, anti-financial capitalist, and I think it pissed off a lot of my socialist uh, followers on Twitter. They they think all capitalism's bad, but I mean, I think we need to uh, we need to leverage what's good about. Right, transition it into a better economic mode. Yeah, I mean, it's like I, I think it was yeah, it was Stalin who said, you know, like there's two types of capitalists. We can work with the industrial capitalists and the feudal capitalists. We can't work with. Yeah. So he was very clear at defining like the difference between, let's say, uh, an arm and hammer type of feudal speculative proto Soros capitalist of the 1920s that just made money looting Russia in the 1920s, who got kicked out with Trotsky, by the way. Uh, versus um, Franklin Roosevelt and his network of pro-development um, capitalists who wanted to help Russia develop their industrial base and, and beyond. Yeah. So, yeah, you have to be nuanced. You have to have a sensitivity to nuance. <laughs> For sure. Gribble's got a yeah. – it sounds like this could be another a long answer to can you discuss the Atlantic Council briefly? We'll, do, we'll just do this last uh, question and then call it call it a night or, or if okay. – you want to call it a night? Maybe well, if there's, we'll if there's good questions, I, I love good questions. So if, if people are, are you know, uh, yeah, sure. You guys, can, you guys keep asking about these big topics, right? We could like go all night. <laughs> I'll be quick. The Atlantic Council, all, all I'll say about that is it's an, it was a think tank affiliated with NATO set up in 1961. Um, to advance the sorts of objectives that NATO was set out to advance, which was, you know, um, 
usher in um, cybernetics as a new form of management of the the great game. Um, the idea of systems analysis, uh, probability theory, in in forms of 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 economic analysis that we'd seen or, or military analysis that we'd seen come out of the Rand Corporation, um, which all basically said, no, human thinking should not play a role in uh, planning either economics or military warfare. Instead, it should be statistical computer modeling, building scenarios that are all based on mathematical probability theory. So that it increasingly, you know, Atlantic Council became a platform to produce white papers, reports that were the product of these types of assessments that would then ideally become policy in NATO. And NATO was set up not in 1949, but rather in 1947 by by um, a grouping of Rhodes Scholars centered ironically in Canada to uh, break away from the UN Security Council, which gave a little bit too much power to Russia and China to veto military activities that the West wanted to uh, to do that would hurt a lot of people. So NATO was created as a substitute or as a way to get around that. I don't know if that, that helps. Yeah, computer models, right? That's what uh, Cl- yeah. Club of Rome uh, limits to growth. It's all computer models. They're um, going to tell us the future, right? Um, yeah. I also, they have a big book of like random numbers too. Have you ever heard of this? It's just a book of random digits. No, I haven't. Why do they do this? So I guess it's like if, if if for some reason they need to come up because the human mind can't actually create random digits the way a computer can. So they wanted to create this reference. So if they needed to digits to input, I don't know, to, to scramble, scramble the enemies or, 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 or just like pure randomized algorithms or something. Right, right, right. Huh, makes sense, I guess, <laughs> um, that they would do that. I saw that there was a question before on uh, on the, the the Macy Foundation, um, and that's a good question in cybernetics because uh, cybernetics was the um, the science of, of control that was created by Norbert Wiener in 1943 when he was working on radar. And uh, Norbert Wiener was a student at Cambridge under his personal mentor, uh, Lord Bertrand Russell. Who had just published the third volume of his Principia Mathematica. Um, now, in, in Bertrand Russell, and, and he co-wrote this with Alfred North Whitehead, and Bertrand Russell laid out within this um, very heavy manual, or three-volume manual, a way of trying to codify the entire universe around a limited set of axioms and postulates. Postulates. So basically saying with a limited finite amount of sets of assumptions, you could construct an entire theorem lattice explaining everything that is has ever been or ever will be in purely logical and thus mathematical symbolic terms. But, he, but the problem was this is nice in theory, but there was no way at this point early on in 1913 when it was being written to apply it in a useful way to manage society. But he knew that's what it would be, that that's what it would do, but it, it still needed that extra applied edge. So that was sort of the challenge to that Norbert Wiener took up throughout decades of his life, which culminated in the development of what he termed cybernetics as again, the, the science of control, looking at the, the, the problem, trying to solve the problem of radar. And when you have a missile or a, an enemy jet fighter plane coming at you, how does the missile operator um, who's, who's, who's managing the, the short or medium or, or long range missile, how do they, 
receive the data of the trajectory of the plane or the missile, calculate it, and then plug in the command to their their um, missile launcher where to shoot in the future. Because, you know, it takes time for all of this feedback to be processed in order to hit where the plane will be or where the missile will be. So this idea of feedback loops became developed in, in the basis of what he understood to be something that applies to everything, including all system, everything that's a system, a, a whole that's more than the sum of its parts. All has feedback loops with a central command structure, the brain, the human economy, the biosphere, um, the, the solar systems, the galaxy, everything could be thought of this way. And he basically saw that in for management purposes, um, this would be great if you could just um, take the analogy of a human body at, or as a machine and then apply it to any uh, department, let's say the OECD or NATO or the Air Force, and bureaucratize the body into many organs with sub-departments and sub-departments so that the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, right? And the only groupings that would be permitted to see what the whole does is in the, the brain center, sort of the executive command structure that would be allowed to see the whole. And that became very useful as a tool to reorganize the bureaucracies of governments, of schools, of unions. It was very useful at, make, at, at compartmentalizing people so that they didn't realize what was the machine and how did, what was its design that they were participants or cogs uh, within. And the Macy Foundation was the primary uh, funding tool to popularize it between 1943 and 46 before it was brought into the OECD and NATO. Uh, the Macy Foundation was one of the biggest foundations that was funding eugenics research in the 1930s. And it was overseen by a guy named uh, Lord uh, <laughs> uh, Churchill. What was his name? Uh, not Lord. No, he wasn't Lord. He was... Uh, Churchill. He was basically a cousin of, of Winston Churchill, who was the head of this thing. And the former job that this guy had between 1919 and 1929, before he creates the, the Macy Foundation in 1930, he was the head of the Black Chamber. And the Black Chamber was sort of the um, <clears throat> the unofficial intelligence arm of the U.S. military that became the, NS, the NSC. Uh, sorry, the NSA, which was part of what merged into British intelligence to create the Five Eyes. So, um, yeah, this, this thing was nasty and, uh, it, it remains nasty to this day, as far as I could tell. Marlboro Churchill, that's his name, Marlboro Churchill. Sorry. All right. Maybe one, one more question. I'm, I'm getting a little one more and then we'll call it. Yeah. 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 All right. Do I think the green possible? I have have you back on Matt. Yeah, yeah, anytime, man. This is fun. <laughs> Do you think that it's possible that the entire green agenda was designed to destroy Russia's hydrocarbon-based economy? The agenda was started about 30 years ago when RF was what? I don't see the rest of that. Um, let me see if I can find it. When RF was getting established. What's RF mean? Oh, Russian Federation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean – it was designed to destroy everything industrial, including Russia. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's a good spot to end it. <laughs> um, <laughs> awesome. Well, it's been so much fun talking to you. Um, <laughs> uh, you can find Matt's work on RisingTideFoundation.net and the CanadianPatriot.org. CanadianPatriot.org, right? Um, yeah. 
What else? You have a Substack too, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's sort of the bread and butter. Uh, MatthewArrett.substack.com is um, daily stuff goes out usually. Um, <clears throat> also, I, I host weekly seminars with my wife, and we do you know we have expert panels uh, presenting every Sunday uh, for people who want to upgrade to a paid subscription. Um, they can do that and get uh, access to the live events. Um, otherwise, yeah, most of it's free. And uh, the other thing, there was another thing, but that's a, that's already a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, we went over a lot tonight. This was great, though. This was so great. I'm so glad we did this. Um, all right, guys. Well, uh, thanks for watching and have an excellent